Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. Ryan Nicodemus is going to be with us on the phone today, but he's up at Flathead Lake vacationing. But don't worry, we have a very special guest for you. Ladies and gentlemen, Destiny is in the studio. Uh, we got, of course, got TK Coleman here. Sending love and light to the whole world. The disembodied voice in the background is Malabama. <laughs> Hi, everybody. We've got the rest of our team here in the studio as well. Destiny, I was talking to Sean yesterday, our podcast producer over here, Professor Sean. He was like, hey, what do you want Destiny's lower thirds to say on the video version of the podcast? And I've never, I've never been stumped with such an easy question before. I didn't know if I should say, well, Destiny, his real name's Steven. Should we say Steven? Should we say Destiny? And also, do I call him a YouTuber? Do I call him a blue-haired progressive? But of course, he doesn't have the blue hair anymore. <laughs> and we wanted to bring you on today to talk about some controversial topics. So first off, how do I even describe you? Uh, I'd say probably YouTuber slash politics streamer, I think. Yeah. And and you dive deep into a lot of philosophical discussions. That's how I stumbled a- across your work. Mm-hmm. And so today I think we'll talk a bit, uh, we'll get philosophical. That's why I always have TK here so we can wax philosophical on the podcast. But um, we'll also answer some pretty controversial questions. I thought we'd start in the minimalist's wheelhouse, though. So we're going to start with a question about materialism and hoarding and how that affects our lives. By the way, we'll start with our callers. If you have a question for the show, you can give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice recording to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know if you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Big thanks to our Patreon supporters, by the way. Your support keeps our podcast and our YouTube channel 100% advertisement-free because... Say it with me, y'all. Advertisements Advertisements suck. suck. Yes, they do. Our first question today is an anonymous voicemail. Hi, The Minimalist. I'm in needing advice on how to handle when you have a friend who's an extreme hoarder. Now, not just a hoarder, but a filthy hoarder with trash all over and massive roaches. I haven't been to her home for years. I've only been on the outside of it, which is bad enough. But she tells me daily about the hoard and the extreme problem of thousands of roaches, but almost does nothing about it. I wanted to help her even organize a room, but of course, that was before the roach problem and all my efforts were destroyed in a short time. I try to encourage and talk, but there's no result. I'm not trying to be judgmental toward her, but I can't even hang out with her now because she carries the roaches with her in her backpack and clothing items. It has made me really uneasy and creeps me out intensely. What is a good way to, for me to either not feel guilty and to end some relationships that can be toxic? or how to tolerate somebody when they live this way, whether it's her or even relatives that hoard a lot and it's just so hard to be in their mess themselves. Well, hoping that you can answer this. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. 
Destiny, I wanted to start with this question because I wanted to bring you into our world for a moment. People call into the show and they're often looking for observations or advice around a particular situation. And um, first off, are your parents hoarders? Yeah. <laughs> um, my mom is actually a big hoarder. Not the not a dirty trash one, mm-hmm. but in that like, I'm pretty sure everything I've ever marked with a pen is it someplace in that house? We have every VHS we ever watched growing up as children. Mm. We have a garage full of every single toy we had, every single school assignment we did. Yeah, she has a huge problem with that. And, and the reason I, I asked that is I just assumed it because anytime I do at one of our live events, I ask this question, almost always the answer to that question, if I say, hey, your parents are hoarders, aren't they? The average person almost always says yes. And the reason they always say yes is because it's true. Most people in America are hoarders. The average American household has 300,000 items in it, which would be great if it was increasing our joy. And Is that actually true? Yeah. I don't, I don't even believe that. That's crazy if that's true. It's a stat from the LA Times in 2014. So huh. it, my, my assumption is that since the minimalists have been around for a while, we probably haven't helped everyone get rid of their excess their stuff. stuff yet. Yeah, I mean, because people are still calling in all the time with mm. all this excess. And so what I'm wondering here is... When you talk to someone like this anonymous caller here, what you're talking about or what she's talking about here is the type of hoarder. This is a stage five hoarder. A stage five hoarder often will have dead pets or roach infestations. But most people are stage one or stage two hoarders. Stage one hoarder means you have light clutter or two or more rooms. Well, that's most people, right? But stage three hoarder is someone who has some slight noticeable odors. Maybe some dishes are piling up or maybe there are piles of clutter strewn throughout the house. So, um... I wanted to bring this up, though, because this this person is dealing with a friend who want, she wants to change, but it sounds to me like that person doesn't want to change herself. Do you have any insights for a caller, for a caller like this? Um, I think there's two important uh, ends to this question. Uh, the first one is, how do you deal with the hoarder? And my answer is always really boring. I would probably Google uh, hoarder research and find out like what are the most effective steps to alleviate somebody's hoarding problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes we have like intuitive ways to solve things that are actually counterintuitive when you see how they play out in the long run. So for instance, I think a lot of people feel or they used to feel an attachment towards uh, corporal punishment for children. And it feels like that's the right thing to do. But if you look at the research on that, it's overwhelmingly negative. So that might be a place where your intuitions lead you to a negative place. I know that for my mom, I wanted to take her out to a really nice uh, steakhouse one night and bring in a bunch of friends and just torch everything in my house. That's what I thought. Um, I don't know if that would be a good idea or not, because in my mind, I'm thinking like, if I can just destroy 95% of your shit, you'll come home, you'll be upset for one week. And then afterwards, you'll go, oh my God, look at how much better my life is that I'm not spending all my time, you know, sorting through boxes and organizing everything. Um, Or she could have a massive emotional breakdown and hate me and never talk to me again. I'm not actually sure what would happen. So... And and by the way, sometimes that happens because someone's going to have the emotional breakdown. If you take, you're essentially stealing that person's stuff at that point, which A, would be illegal, but -hmm. but B, that doesn't mean they have also let go of it. Forcing someone to let go of a material possession doesn't mean they let go of it emotionally, psychologically, and they may carry that with them forever. It may be a bigger burden now that it's gone. Yeah, potentially, because that's what I asked her, because I'm like, why don't you like you've wasted so many years of your life just like sorting through boxes and like organizing the stuff that you only ever see when you're organizing. And she's like, well, these are my things that I've acquired in my life. Um, And I for whatever reason, when I grew up, my parents like inversely 
uh, influenced every single behavior I have. So when I go to clean my apartment, I take a trash bag and if I haven't used it for three months, it just gets thrown out immediately. Like I don't keep anything extra ever. So mm-hmm. we have like a very different mindset towards, um, I guess maintaining our households. The, there's a second part to that question though, that I think is really important that a lot of people don't address and you've got the hoarder, but then you also have yourself. I think it is incredibly important to establish what are fair boundaries in your life or how you engage with other people. Because I've noticed that there are a lot of people You've got like givers and takers when it comes to, you know, you could say psychological energy. Uh, and there are some people that are very giving of themselves to other people. And sometimes they compromise their own happiness or integrity by constantly making excuses or exceptions for other people in their lives that mm-hmm. are very damaging to them. So I think that, I mean, there's going to be cases where there's trauma and your gut response maybe isn't good or it needs to be worked on. But I would say for most people in general, I think you should rely on your gut response. That if you're around somebody that makes you feel uncomfortable most of the time, you should probably take a step back and evaluate why that is. And if there's a compelling reason for you to stay there, I think that's really important. And I think it's okay to love that person from a distance if you see that they're harming themselves in a way or or they're going to harm you in some way by Mm -hmm. being in their presence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think two common extremes of communication, particularly when it comes to resolving conflict, is the extreme niceties and the extreme anti-nice philosophy. I don't have to be nice. The fact that I'm telling the truth gives me permission to say it however the hell I want to say it. And then the other way is to say, I'm going to make sure that I present it in a manner that's sweet, but there is an in-between. Sometimes you got to be firm. You got to be real. You got to be authentic. And you don't have to add a punch to that in order to make the other person swallow it. And so you can make value judgments about what doesn't work for you and about what disgusts you and what you don't like without wishing out loud for that other person to spend an eternity in hell, right? And so sometimes this benefits our friends when we can look them in the eye and say things like, look, I can't do it, man. I can't meet with you for coffee. I can't go to the movies with you. I can't go for a walk with you. Why? Because even though I love the hell out of you, it actually disgusts me, man. When I see roaches crawling out of your jacket and we're sitting down trying to have lunch, it makes me want to throw up just to smell you when I'm around you. And, the and that's problem, without the punch? That's without the punch. <laughs> Jeez, okay. That's without the punch. Hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, man, this is love. And I would hope someone says this to me rather than just stop hanging out with me. And then I find out that they did because they thought I was gross and they were just telling everybody else about it, but they didn't tell me, what the hell, man? I thought you were my friend. And you can say to a person, I love the hell out of you, but man, it makes me want to throw up, man. It's really bad. You got roaches crawling out of your book bag. It's really bad. And this is something that you're choosing because you can do something about it. So look, we can talk on the phone as much as you need. If there's anything I can do to help you, I am here for you. But I'm sorry, man. It breaks my heart to say I can't be getting together for lunch like this because I don't want to bring that home with me. That is, if if you have someone in your life that can't handle that, at some point, you have to put responsibility on other people to be real about what they're willing to live with as well. You can't take that responsibility. And a good friend can handle that and say, all right, um, I respect that. Let's talk on the phone. But you might be surprised the kind of impact you can have on a person when you give them a dosage of reality because the the rest of the world, the people that don't love that person like you, they're going to give it to them in a way that's 10 times harsher than that. If you think that's harsh, wait until you meet that person who doesn't love you, who isn't heartbroken about not being able to hang out with you. Dustin, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I largely agree. The extreme mean can be bad. Uh, the extreme nice can be really bad too. Something that people don't, Um, some people that 
people don't see how damaging relentless compassion can be towards somebody if it's at an enabling level. Like sometimes, again, like you said, you don't have to tell somebody like, hey, you know, screw you. Like you're a disgusting, filthy piece of shit. But if you're constantly around somebody like, oh, you know, like it's okay. Oh, you know, it's all right. We can hang out. Like it's cool or whatever. You know, in that person's mind, they might think that, well, you know, I've got at least a couple of friends that are okay. Maybe it's not bad as I think it is. Sometimes having somebody say like, hey, listen, um, you're chill and I like hanging out with you, but like, I can't do this right now because you're too far gone for me. That might be maybe, if not the wake up call, maybe something that starts setting mm -hmm. them on a path towards improving that situation. Hopefully, yeah, it yeah. sounds like it changes their, it could potentially change their direction. And by the way, you're also going to feel good about that. You handled it in a loving way. Loving doesn't mean dragging them, kicking and screaming to your point of view. And it also doesn't mean I'm just going to placate you. So you feel really good about yourself. Mm -hmm. One last thing, none of this should be the starting point. The starting point is curiosity because there's a difference between people's desire to hear us preach to them and people's need to be heard by someone that's willing to listen. If you preach at someone, they might be defensive. If you come to them with non-judgmental curiosity, just trying to learn, they open up their hearts and their minds to you and they give it to you. And so you can get that person on the phone. You can say, hey, I don't mean this in any kind of way, but just as your friend, man, what's up with the roaches? Yeah. Like, seriously, like I personally, I can't even imagine how somebody could do it. Like, what's up with that? Is that something that you're cool with? Is that something that you like? Or is, is there is there like, is that something that you hate, but you just don't think you can change? I, I'm, I just want to hear from you, man. I think we're going to talk yeah. more about curiosity here. In fact, I'm really curious about this next question. Samantha from Patreon has. Why do we need to have controversial debates? Mm. It feels like the only way people are drumming up traffic on their sites these days. I want my corner of the internet to be calm and minimal and based on positivity. Why can't we just bond together over shared interests rather than talk about the things that divide us? And then let's couple that with Renee's question because I thought they were so similarly linked, although they had their nuances. I was always taught that talking about religion, politics, and money with people was taboo, and our thoughts on those topics should be kept private. Now I see it's because it's difficult to have meaningful conversations with anyone on those topics. Where do we strike the balance of healthy conversation without demonization of opposing viewpoints? This is exactly why I've been looking forward to having this conversation. And it's because what TK was talking about a moment ago, Dustin, he was talking about curiosity and getting curious. And, and while I see you two being radically different people and your opinions and beliefs and ideology, uh, dogma, one might even say, but you're both hyper curious and you don't seem to cling to a particular dogma. And when someone presents you with something, uh, quite often, I think the average person, myself included, gets offended and, and brings up our own self-righteousness. And I need to now prove that I'm right and you're wrong. And when I've watched some of your debates online, Destiny, you do such a great job of getting curious about the other viewpoints. And so I know when we first put this out to our Patreon audience, several people were actually upset. Like, why do you have to have a, a debate about anything? And the point of this episode that I wanted to do is to show that we could talk about contentious topics, sensitive subjects in a way where it's not just decorum and we're pretending that we're uh, being curious, but we're actually having a conversation around these things in a way that's not accusatory. It's not pointing the finger. And it's also not standing up on a pedestal and looking down at someone else and judging them for exactly how wrong they are. What a dumb question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, 
I think it's really important to recognize that in the United States, we have a huge diversity of opinion. Most people think that they have diverse friend groups because they might look a little different or come from different areas. But the reality is we tend to surround ourselves with people that are pretty similar. You ask a liberal, like, do you have any conservative friends? A lot of them might say, yeah, I've got a couple. And it's like, are like really conservative friends, like ones that wear MAGA hats and are pro second amendment. And they're like, oh, okay, well, no, I have a, I've got a conservative friend, but he didn't like Trump that much. And he's like, just kind of fiscally conservative, but like, he's okay with LGBT. So you don't really have a huge different group of friends, which is fine. You don't have to be friends with people that you have massive ideological differences with, but we should be able to see eye to eye or at least have both of our eyes look at the same world as a person that has big ideological differences from us. I think that it demonstrates a great uh, deal of maturity to, um, there's a quote, uh, I should have this memorized, but it's like, it takes a great mind to, um, to entertain an idea without accepting it. Yes. Right? You should be able mm. to understand where other people are coming from without fully agreeing with them. And you should be able to understand that people can arrive at different conclusions because of their own life experiences. And they might even be wrong, but at least you can empathize with why they're doing it. And it's not just because they're evil or demons or hateful. And most of the time when someone we say is wrong about something, it's often a preference or an opinion. Like, oh, you like onions. How could you be so wrong about that? And and quite often we get self-righteous even about things that are just preferences. Yeah, you know, one important word to underline in in the first question was, is we, hey, why why can't we just focus on the positive? Why do we have to be involved in the debates? If, If you change that we to I, then you get to do exactly what you please. You don't have to participate in any debates if it stresses you out, if you don't enjoy it. But one aspect of this diversity that that, uh, Destiny talked about here is that there are some people in the world who genuinely get energy from it, right? I'm a really introverted person and I just don't really get people who are energized and pumped up by being around a whole bunch of people. I find it exhausting. I prefer to be alone. But I understand that there are people who are energized by that which depletes me. And it's the same with debate. Many people are afraid of it. They're uncomfortable around it. If you have a party and there are two people who get to arguing, most people will will treat it like, oh, hey, 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 guys, guys, it's okay. But those two guys are probably having an immense amount of fun that might be difficult for you to imagine. So when it comes to we, we have to accept that there are different people who experience debates in different ways. The other thing I'll say is one of the values of debate is not just that it helps you learn but it actually builds your psychological muscles of resilience. So many of us live in a a psychological space where we are dependent upon other people's agreement or affirmation. And when we're in a debate where we have to live in that tension of someone saying, I think you're wrong, we don't know what to do with ourselves. And if you have spaces conversationally that you never want anyone to take you into, if you've got questions that you're afraid, secretly afraid, someone might ask you your opinion on, That leads to a kind of anxious life where you always have to be worried about, uh uh-oh, are they going to call me out on this belief that I have? Are they going to ask me for evidence? And when you can participate in debates as a kind of spiritual practice, if you will, it helps you develop the ability to maintain composure when you're in spaces where people may take the conversation in an unpredictable direction. And you can say, all right, cool, I can go there. Destiny, what I heard you sort of saying there is it's possible to love someone or care about them without liking every single opinion they might have. Mm. But like truly, because a lot of people will (laughs) say that. A lot of people will say, 
I can love somebody despite our differences. But you, for you to really test that, you have to find the really uncomfortable differences. It's easy to say, I like this guy, even though he thinks the top marginal tax bracket should be 33%. It's a lot harder to say, I love this person, even though he thinks abortion should be federally illegal throughout the entire United States. Or I love this person, even though they think that like uh, trans healthcare for children shouldn't be available. Or I love this person, even though he thinks we should send $500 billion a year to Ukraine or whatever, depending on your political affiliation. Um, it's, it, it takes a lot to accept that people can have radically different viewpoints mm -hmm. and not be demonized. And I think that kind of what you said, there's a psychological buildup there of if you're capable of having a lot of conversations, not only do you develop a resiliency for your own ideas, you also develop the ability to kind of hopefully tolerate and understand other people as well. Although that comes with deliberate practice because it is possible. And probably I can understand your viewers saying like, oh, why do we have to talk about debate or whatever? There is a lot of debate that's engaged in just bad faith. It's not, it's not even really debate where two people are trying to make commensurate their views with one another to yeah. disagree and agree with each other. It's just people screaming at each other, which is the opposite of everything we've said. That's not productive. It's not a way to be compassionate. It's not a way to build resiliency. Yeah. And it's entertaining though. And I think that's why we're so drawn to yeah. it. In fact, right. Many of the, the 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 clips and things that I see you in is because you're willing to get into those sort of con and maybe even you thrive in that area because you're not bothered by those mm -hmm. contentious arguments. Yeah, which is frustrating because people will. I have a reputation. People say, "Oh God, like this guy's just going to scream at me the whole time." Like ninety eight percent of my conversations are similar to this. They're pretty chill, yeah. but obviously the things that go the most viral are me and another guy screaming at each other about who's the biggest cock or who's like the dumbest dumbass or whatever. Like that's just yeah because that's usually what garners views and what gets more attention, but. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. I'm going to skip Michelle's question because I want to do something. Usually during the, we do something called the lightning round where we answer questions. We have a minute to give a short, shareable, pithy response. We call the minimal maxims. But today, since we have Destiny and we have TK here, TK and, and, and Destiny, I think we'll be able to debate a few things. I picked some questions I, I thought the two of you would disagree about, and I think we'll start there. So we have a question here from, and we'll give you three minutes each on this, and then I'll, I'll add some follow-up questions on top of it. First question from Daniel on Instagram. Is there an objective morality or is morality relative? Must you believe in God to believe in morality? Hmm. Destiny, let's start with you on this. So do you believe in an objective morality? <laughs> yeah, let me just solve uh, ethics right now for you. <laughs> By the way, you got 60 seconds? Oh, my gosh. Well, no, he gave me three minutes to oh, solve ethics. Yeah. Thank you. Um, oh, yeah, no let me problem. tell you, as a YouTube uh, idiot, yeah. Okay, so my personal view on this is my issue with saying there is an objective moral truth is that it raises the question of objective moral facts. And when I think of an objective moral fact, what I'm thinking of is, is there any way for us to perceive a moral fact? And there doesn't seem to be a way to do that. If one person kills somebody else, there are physical properties that my eyes, my ears, I can go and touch that I can observe. And if somebody else disagrees with me over something, we can reconcile that based on similar sense data. We all have the same eyes, we all have the same ears, more or less we regard things similarly. But when it comes to observing a moral fact, that murder was wrong versus this guy saying that murder was justified. Well, we have to get into kind of, it's a, a cognitive exercise, a rational exercise of like, well, let's have an argument over this or that, which I don't think is similar for anything else. So I don't believe that there are objective moral facts. I, I don't, um, if you're looking for like an, an actual position of mine, I would be a moral anti-realist because I don't believe that morals are real. And I probably fall on a side called non-cognitivism, where I think that when you're expressing a moral statement, you're really just expressing a per, uh, personal preference. So if somebody says murder is wrong, what you're really saying is murder, boo. I, I don't like that. Basically. <laughs> um, and I think that, but, but I think that the reason why we've kind of 
um, to take it a step further, my arrogance, my hubris, the reason why we fooled ourselves into thinking there are objective moral properties is because we all share very similar preferences as humans. Um, we all want to be respected, our personal bodily autonomy. We want to be happy. We want to be healthy. We want to have families. And from this, I think we all have similar non-cognitivist views on these like moral propositions. Like, I don't want to be murdered. Boo, that is bad. Don't steal from me. Boo, that is bad. Uh, we'd like to take it one step further and say, well, objectively, these are moral truths of the fabric of the universe. But in reality, I think we all just have a similar set of preferences that we probably ought to respect because it helps us maximize our own experiences on this planet. Can you, I, oh, I want to, can I push back on that? Or? Please do. Yeah. So, okay. You can see that the reason we're inclined to believe that moral values are objective is that we all have this similar set of preferences. Could that not be described as a kind of universal universality of perception that's analogous to us being able to see the same thing with our eyes? I think that you can make that argument for some things that are very basic. So mm. should we torture and murder people? No. Well, we all agree on that. Don't we observe that the same way we observe an apple falling off a tree? But then I might ask a question like, should homosexual relationships be allowed in public? It's a lot harder for two people that disagree to have a very clear perception of what's right or wrong, because then we start to get very societally outcome oriented where, because here we can take, like, look at some objective facts. Let's say the guy that's pro gay relationship says, look, I've ran the math and society is actually better objectively in every conceivable metric when we have gay relationships. The other guy can go, I don't care. You're not measuring the spiritual decay that's occurring when we allow for those relationships. You're not measuring how it's changing the way that we view relationships and it's abusing, um, you know, either gifts given from God or natural, the teleology of like what human bodies are designed to do. And I don't know how you ever resolve that. So we can make a distinction between the existence of moral facts Mm -hmm. and the amount of uh, moral facts that there are, right? Mm -hmm. So it may be the case that there are only about five moral facts And that's incredibly boring. It doesn't solve a lot of very important debates. But if that's true, that would mean that objective moral values exist. It would also mean that not everything is a matter of objective morality. Some things are a matter of preference. Some things are a matter of taste. And most moral realists actually do believe that, right? That, you know, I like chocolate ice cream. You like vanilla ice cream. Who's right? Well, there is no objective moral fact about that, right? So Objective moral facts can coexist with a world where not everything is reducible to an objective moral fact. What would be your response to that? Um, I, I guess then I would dig deeper into like, how do we observe like a moral fact? Is it literally just are we relying on our sense of disgust or? So, so one could argue that something along the lines of moral intuition would be an organ of perception. Mm-hmm. So in the same way that physically you and I can see that same guy sitting there, that in, intuitively we're, we're perceiving that same thing, namely the same set of preferences that you mentioned, like torturing innocent babies for spectator sport. That's morally wrong. We all seem to agree on that. So that could be an argument that we're seeing with some sort of intuition. We're picking up on that. So my, the interesting question I have there is, let's say I can, I can shape the intuitions of society. If I do this with physics, at some point, we're going to hit an uncomfortable wall where it's like, listen, you guys can think this, but the math doesn't work. What do you do when you've got a society full of people that have a moral intuition that might be, I wouldn't believe this is even a possible phrase, but like wrong moral intuitions, right? So for instance, you had a group full of people cheering and chanting when a witch is being drowned or burned at the stake. For all of them to have that intuition that some good activity is happening there, that some witch or some, you know, demon is being burned. Do you tell those people, I'm sorry that your moral analysis here is wrong. Your intuition is wrong. How do you, basically at the final level, this is where all these conversations go back to, to me, and I'm guessing the answer would be is, 
I can resolve a dispute between any type of physics, chemistry, mathematics, whatever question. I don't know how to resolve disputes of moral fact. So I don't think you can resolve the disputes over the physical things. We can create those same epistemic difficulties with the physical world if you give me the, the powers of technology to manipulate people's perception of physical reality. What if through the use of holographic technology, what if the use of, what if, what if I can develop some kind of mind control technology and I can actually make people see a monster when they don't see that. I can make people see an alien when there's no alien there. I've created the same set of epistemic difficulties, but it doesn't negate the existence of an object of physical reality. It just means there are really complicated scenarios where we may not have any easy answers for knowing what's real and what's not. And so belief in objective moral values doesn't have to mean all moral questions can be easily answered. And to answer the second part of that question then, yeah. TK, does it require a belief in God or must God exist then for there to be an objective moral morality? So as a believer in God, no, it doesn't. Because throughout the history of Western analytic philosophy, there have been a lot of thinkers who subscribe to moral realism, but have grounded it apart from theism. So th there, there are certain beliefs, whether it's um, the, the, the Randian objectivist view, uh, there's sort of like the deontological ethical view. And then there are some people who they anchor it in uh, the empirical evidence for human flourishing. Whether or not those arguments are good, that's up for debate. But it is a fact historically that there are lots of moral realists who are not also theists and who don't ground it in theism. So so it wouldn't suffice to say, oh, you believe in objective moral values? Oh, you must believe in God. That's not true for a lot of people out there. Yeah, that's true. He brings yeah. up Rand, Kant, um, Sam Harris, I think, were the yeah. references. Yeah, you can have objective morality. Well, I mean, I would say you can't, but other people feel like they found it even without a God figure being necessary. Well, speaking of Rand, let's, uh, let's move on to the next question here. This one is from Halo on TikTok. Is taxation theft? Can you debate libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism? <laughs> well, so so it seems to me that once upon a time, Destin, you were sympathetic to this worldview, and then your views have evolved over time. Yeah, I was my most libertarian when I was at my lowest point in life, right before I got into streaming. I was a big Ron Paul <laughs> supporter and everything. Yeah. Um, is taxation theft? I feel like when we live in a society, there are a set of agreements that we have with each other that in order to take advantage of all the good things we get from society, there are some implicit agreements that we've made for how to conduct ourselves in society. So I don't, you know, violate other people's aut autonomous expectations. I don't punch people in the street. Um, I don't walk around naked. I don't litter, pollute, destroy. There are a whole bunch of agreements that, you know, I have, even in my own property, I'm not allowed to discharge a firearm inside my house. I'm not allowed to set my house on fire and walk away, even though I own it. Uh, these are all things that we've kind of agreed because we've created a society that creates more than the sum of our parts, right? Like everybody coming together can create something that's better than just everybody working independently. And in order, the only way for that to work is there has to be a necessary transaction between all those people in society. And I consider it taxation to be one of those transactions. So is taxation theft? I mean, taxation is theft as much as it's a restriction on my freedom not to, you know, run down the street naked, essentially. Oh, man, totally disagree. So first, I, I, I define theft as the use of violence or the threat thereof to forcibly extract something from another party. And I think we have to make a distinction between two very different questions. Question number one, is taxation theft? I don't know how it couldn't be. So I would love to hear how you would define theft to make it not so. 
But the second question is, are there morally justifiable circumstances under which theft would be okay? Mm. So I believe that a lie is a lie, but I think there are some circumstances where perhaps you could argue it would be a morally good thing for you to lie in this particular instance. I'm open to that argument big time. And I think we have to do the same thing with theft. I think my decision to not run down the street naked is of a very different order than my decision to cooperate with the government when they say pay your taxes or there's going to be some serious consequences to bear. I think the argument you just gave could also be used to justify respecting the mafia. If I'm walking through a gang infested neighborhood and there's a bunch of guys looking at me, there's a rule that I will play by. It's called don't start none, won't be none. I'm not going to look at those guys. I'm not going to say anything that might provoke those guys to violence. I'm going to do the smart thing and behave in the way that gives me the best chance of living. However, if I happen to look at a guy and say, what you looking at, fool? That would be a very stupid thing to do, but it wouldn't change the fact that if he pulled out a gun and shot me in the head, that would be murder. Would it have been dumb of me to provoke him? Absolutely. Would a smarter version of me mind my own business? Absolutely. But what he does in the hypothetical scenario is murder. And the only question to ask is, was he justified in that act of murder? I guess here's a question. Let's say you've got 10 cows and let's say that every Friday a guy comes along and he milks two of those cows. You don't want him to. It's against your consent. He milks two of those cows. He takes the milk. Would you consider that theft? Do I own the cows? Yeah. I own the cows. Yeah. Some guy comes and milks the cows yeah. without my consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would consider that theft. Okay. Let's say that he milks the cows, but he leaves you um, an above fair market exchange for what you could have sold the milk for. Is it still theft? I would consider it theft, but done so in a way that would incline some people, not me, to be more okay with it. I think that when I think of taxation, I think of it more like the latter, where it's not straight theft because somebody's not taking your money in exchange for nothing. There is an exchange there, and that exchange is the massive society that we're able to sustain and live in. So I think that some people might say that it's theft because something is being taken from me without my consent, but I would argue that the existence of society and the consumption of that society said resources necessitate that sort of exchange. So I'm not going to accuse, you know, a man next to me stealing the oxygen by breathing, right? Because we all have to live here and share it. I think I would say the same for taxation in the United States. I guess under some definitions, we could call it theft, but I think that theft generally implies is one, it's completely non-consensual, which I guess some libertarians would argue taxation is, but two, there's usually something for nothing. Usually somebody's taking something, you're not getting anything back for it. And I think that once you have that exchange of the societal upkeep there, I think it fundamentally alters the way that you view the question. I I, I think we have to make a distinction between what a thing is Uh and my psychological proclivity to be okay with what you are doing to me under certain conditions. There are conditions where you can bribe me into being okay with doing something wrong to me, right? Um, In this case, oxygen, which was an example you use, that's something that none of us own. On the other hand, if you come into my home and you take an oxygen tank that I have, I do own that and that would be a clear instance of theft. Um, If I take $20 and go to the coffee shop and bring you a cup of coffee back. That's not going to stop you from being mad about the fact that I stole your $20 just because I bought you a $2 cup of coffee. And so I think the argument you're making is an argument that says, look, when you consider the greater good, that would make theft morally justifiable. I don't think it makes it something other than theft. But, you know, uh, as far as it being morally justifiable, the the basis for the, 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 the societal good that you're referring to 
it starts with the wealth that's extracted from people. In other words, the entity that is taking this wealth and redistributing it doesn't create any value of its own. It can only create value by first taking it. So I think what's happening there is, is, is the broken window fallacy. If I could ask, I'm curious, do you think yeah. that chores that children do for their parents, would you consider that theft? No, I don't. Oh, not though. You're essentially milking them for free labor, not paying them a fair wage. So you and I, you said something earlier about mm -hmm. um, parental discipline. And so we may agree here on, a, on an area where you're not participating, mm -hmm. or where you're not anticipating. I don't believe in, in coercive parenting, and mm -hmm. I don't believe in violent parenting. So I don't believe that as a parent, you have the moral right to just make your child do anything that you want them to do, mm -hmm. uh, irrespective of the consideration of their dignity and their freedoms and their rights and so on. And surprisingly, that's a very controversial position. Um, but I think I don't, I don't think all ways of asking your children to do chores are equal in the same way that I think it's right to discipline your kid. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's cool or right to physically do that. Sure. But yeah. like, let's say that like they mow the lawn once a week, they take the trash out, you know, two or three times a week. Like if, if I were to pay like a house cleaner to do it, this might be a couple hundred bucks a yeah. week, but I give my child a $10 a week allowance. Is yeah. there like a theft that's occurring there? Uh, no, I don't believe that there's a theft that's occurring there as long as there, as long as what's being done is voluntary. So, so. Well, but how for, voluntary is a child doing for, chores for the parent? <laughs> so for instance, well, well, first we, mm -hmm. we can't define what's voluntary by the internal emotional experience that you're having. Because even you and I as adults, we do a lot of very valuable things we're choosing to do. And inside we have moments where we're like, oh, I do not want to do this. That doesn't mean we're free. That just means we're human beings. And sometimes we have moods where we don't like what we're doing, mm -hmm. but we recognize the value of it. When I go home to Chicago, if my dad says, hey son, get me a glass of water. He knows and I know that I can say, no dad, I'm not getting you anything. And if I do that, he does not have the right to put his hands on my body. And he won't do that. It may alter our relationship in a negative way for me to treat him like that. But what's going to happen in the end is I won't do the thing that I don't want to do. But if he says, get me a glass of water, I'm going to go do it. Even if I don't feel like it. Why? Because it's part of our relationship for me to do it. You know, so... And, and I, I guess I'm having trouble seeing where this maps over to the government. I guess my summary my of it, because we can go back and forth this for a long time. Yeah. My, my summary of it, my feelings are that like, when we look at chores that children do for parents, yeah. is it theft? And I mean, in a way, you're kind of stealing labor from them. You're not really compensating them for market wage. But wait, wait why, why, why is it? Are you imagining a context where the parent is threatening the child? And well, saying, you're always, hey, you have to do your chores or else you lose privileges. Yeah, but, that, but, but privileges versus rights. That's a key distinction. If, if, you, if you are my child, and I'm raising you, it's not a privilege for me to feed you. That's a, that, that's a, that's a moral No, but it might obligation. be a privilege for me to have like access to the internet. And even the government can't take that away. They give me a ticket unless they put me in jail or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so if, if I say to you as a child, mm -hmm. hey, you don't want to clean up your room? All right, I'm not going to be violent with you. But at the same time, sitting around and playing the Xbox every day that I pay for, that's not happening. That would be my right as a child to revoke privileges in response to things that my child is doing that disrespect certain considerations that govern the home. Absolutely. Yeah, but you have the but, power. But we're talking privileges, yeah, not rights. Yeah, I know, but the power imbalance there is, it makes it very difficult for the child to, to, like, I can't take away any of your privileges because you're an adult and you can go and do what you want. I know that child is functionally my slave. He can't, unless he becomes emancipated in the courts, he can't escape my household. He's not allowed to work and get a job. His existence essentially lives under the thumb of my rule. So if I say, listen, you're going to mow the lawn or no cell phone, no computer, no TV, you're going to come home, you're going to do your homework and you're going to stare at a wall for four hours and then you're going to go to sleep. 
Yeah, yeah. So, but, yeah. but but you're asking me how I feel about that morally. Mm-hmm. If as a parent you choose to to threaten your child and say, "Hey, if you don't mow the lawn, I'm going to make your life as difficult as I can possibly making it mm-hmm. by by walking a fine line where I literally deprive you of everything that you don't have legal access to." I think you're a total jerk if you do that as a parent. And and I think that's objectively moral wrong. Of course, I would have to defend that notion. So this is why I can't map it over with the government because I I, I do have a philosophy that allows me to criticize parents Mm -hmm. for the way they treat their children. I guess the thing that, just to summarize my point of view, the thing that I was saying is that like I view chores in a similar way as taxation, where chores are a burden that the parents place on the child. And in a way, it's not necessarily fair because the child's not being compensated a fair market wage for it. But there's like an agreement that like it builds discipline. It does all of these extra external beneficial things for children to do chores such that that one-to-one wage compensation might not necessarily need to happen. The same way that like when you pay taxes to the government, we're building a society that wouldn't be able to exist in any other form without taxation. So even though taxes are being drawn from us, there are all of these external beneficial factors that are a, a positive for us. That's, that's the comparison I was going to make. Yeah. One quick important distinction, Go and I know it. we're not going to cover everything yeah, there yeah. is to... We can argue for three hours on this. When it, <laughs> when, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, when it comes to the parent and the child... Mm-hmm. All of the wealth Mm -hmm. that that child has access to was created by the parent independently of the child's contribution. Um, That's true. Not only is it true, but but the existence of the child actually takes away from some of the wealth that it has access to as a result of what the parent has created. You're living in a house. As a parent, I can attest to that. (laughs) You're you're living in a house that you don't pay bills for, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You you are eating food that you didn't pay for Mm -hmm. and that you didn't prepare. So all of the wealth that's available to the child is created by the parent independently of the child. In your case, where you're talking about this flourishing society that the government makes, there is not a single aspect of that that is provided by the government that is not financed by creative individuals who create value independently of the government. In other words, everything that the government gives to you, it has to have the wealth to give it. And in order to get that wealth, it takes it from you and from others. And that's a very critical distinction between the parent and child relationship. Destiny, at what point did your viewpoint bifurcate from TK's? Because it sounds to me like at some point in your nadir of living, you were at a part where you really sympathize with this worldview, but then you've become privy to new information, new ideas. What happened? Something that's very difficult for poor people to understand is marginal utility. The idea that the next thing isn't as good as the thing that came before it. Mm. Um, When I started to earn more money when I got into streaming, and then especially when I had a son, and I saw how much different my life was when I got the next 10,000, the next 100,000, whatever dollars of income, I started to realize how unimaginably different life was for wealthy people versus for poor people. When I was at my poorest point, my kind of thought process was if I keep working hard, as long as I work hard, I can do whatever. I just need to keep pushing through, pull myself up, whatever, blah, blah, blah. That was kind of my thought process. I was a big worker, worked 13 day stretches every time at my little carpet cleaning job, like for horrible pay and a very libertarian, blah, blah, blah. And then once I started to make more money and I'm like, oh, um, I can actually get a flat tire and it doesn't destroy my life. Oh, I can get a speeding ticket and who cares? Or I can have a court case and I can pay for a lawyer and make it go away. Or I, you know, I can put my kid in the nicest school in my, you know, my entire city. And like, oh, you know, kids have to go home from school. They have their own personal iPads when they're like two, or I'm sorry, not two, when they're in like second grade, which is crazy to me. Um, I start to see the differences in life between the wealthy and the non-wealthy. And I'm like, listen, If the government wants to take or scrape the top 10, 20, 30, 40% of my income, or in California here, 50% of your income, depending on how brutal the uh, state taxes are for your particular bracket, um, 
My argument does not apply to California. Actually, f- the, fuck this state, okay? Jesus. <laughs> my argument doesn't apply to California, okay? I moved out of this taxed hellhole, all right? But in general, I'm like, listen, if I can pay a little bit more to alleviate some of the suffering or some of the hardships that some of these people experience, no amount of taking, even if you take 60% of my income, my life's not going to meaningfully change at all. But for a person earning 20000 a year, a 2000 or $3,200 tax credit for a child, that's a game changer. That's a huge amount of money that can make a difference in that person's life. So that's generally how I view it. Is it's a marginal utility thing. If I've got 10 people, one guy has a million dollars and the other nine have 10,000. If I take $300,000 from the millionaire, his enjoyment of life is going to be hardly impacted. And if I spread that $300,000 out to the other nine people, their enjoyment of life is going to be dramatically improved. That's kind of how I view taxation and government structures. Yeah. I think I agree with a lot of that. Where I have a problem is I remember when I was back in the corporate world, I left in 2011. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, which was great in Dayton, Ohio. And I was in my late 20s, around 30 years old. And that first year I made $23,000. And I was more financially free that year because I had radically simplified my life. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should go out now and live on $23,000, but I did have greater freedom and had very little to do with income. It had much more to do with the idea that I no longer needed the things I thought I needed before. Can you maybe talk about that mm. a bit? Yeah, that's a whole other area. Um, I'm so glad I didn't fall in this trap. I don't know why, but first of all, how wealthy you feel is a function of, is largely a function of how much you spend and how much you make. You can make a lot of money and and live like a brokey, okay? Yeah. Depending on how stupid you are with acquiring liability after liability after liability. Um, for me, uh, coming from a family that had a lot of issues with money, money to me exemplifies freedom. If I total my car, I can buy a new one in cash. I drive a $40,000 car. I don't have a 250000 I don't have a Bugatti or whatever, right? I have my car. I can travel anytime I want. If I want to quit working, I can quit working. To me, money, yeah, money is, is, is the freedom to do things. Hmm. For a lot of people, um, and for a variety of reasons, capitalist, consumerist, advertising, whatever, money is a means to exemplify status. And status is acquired through material possessions. And once you're on the treadmill of that rat race, there is no amount of money that you can make a million dollars a year and easily blow through that if you're just trying to buy things to show status to other people. So yeah, I, I, if you're, it's, it, I could totally believe somebody going from making 200000 a year to not feeling as comfortable to making twenty dollars $30,000 a year and being like, you know what? I don't even think I need a car. I like jeans and t-shirts. Um, I have a computer I play games on and I go out, you know, like maybe drinking every Friday night or something, right? And you could like live a fun, free life doing that. But yeah, the the people that spend money just buying um, like highly mm. depreciating material things or mm. acquiring liabilities. People do this buying cars, payday, uh, whatever furniture and all this stuff. Yeah, it's just a really bad approach to money, I think. I think. Going into tr- tremendous amounts of debt. I heard you talk about this recently. You were, when I was prepping for this episode, you were talking about your parents having a tremendous amount of debt. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, the, you, I'm sure you guys have used the term lifestyle creep, right? Yeah, absolutely. Are, we call it lifestyle inflammation. Yeah, they are very, very, very big on that to where they can earn a lot of money, but they always have to buy new things. If you compare me to every other member of my family, I look like the poorest person in my family. <laughs> Just because of how much stuff everybody likes to buy and the big houses <laughs> and all the cars and the, yeah. And was that, was that your reaction to them? Were you sort of thumbing your nose at them or were you just so disgusted by the hedonic treadmill that they were on that you decided to hop off? 
I think disgusted is a strong word. Like I understand the thought process for a lot of people. And a lot of it is kind of like a victim of what you've been told or advertised to in society. My, that half of my family, my mom, her sister, um, come from Cuba. And when they moved and they came to the United States, the idea is that in the United States, you can achieve unimaginable things. There's an unimaginable amount of wealth here, nice houses, there's cars, freedom, things you can buy, all these things you can do. And I think that sometimes people put the cart before the horse, whereas those other things, houses and cars are supposed to represent like a freedom for you. And that's the end goal. Instead, they fixate on the things themselves in order to assume that at some point that freedom is going to show up. But yeah, the, yeah. but th those things are like, um, th those things should be like a byproduct of the freedom that you're kind of trying to strive for, not the end results themselves because the freedom won't come as a byproduct. Yeah, that makes sense. TK, before we take a mm -hmm. break, I'm yeah. going to tune into one more question here. This one is from oh, Alberto. On taxation. From X. <laughs> do you have any controversial dating advice? Mm. Destiny, do you have any controversial dating advice? And I, I wanted to have this question here up front before we go to the break, because I think you and TK have radically different worldviews, although he and I really don't talk about this. I, I, I too, I'm in a marriage. It's an open marriage. And so... Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and actually, TK's in a relationship with Jesus. So, uh, <laughs> no, he's he's in a Catholic marriage, a, a long-term Catholic marriage. And so um, I think we bifurcate pretty significantly here. Although I've always, I've never felt, I've always felt respected by TK and vice versa. Yeah. But do you have any dating advice for folks? Dating advice or controversial dating Feelings. Those are two very different things. Uh, <laughs> well, let's do both. Yeah. You start. You start with whichever one you, you want. Both of them need to be controversial, though. The, fir <laughs> the first controversial thing I say is you're not dating until you live with somebody. Up until then, you're talking, or you can be exclusive, or whatever you want to call it. But until you actually share a household with somebody, you have no idea what that person is like or how you get along with them. Which is probably going to conflict maybe a lot with the Catholic viewpoint on that. But, no, um, I, you know, I don't think so. I think it conflicts more with my viewpoint. My really? wife and I live apart half the time. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, right. And because we tried the whole living together thing and it's awesome. I just am not good to live with. I'm okay, really difficult I'll, to I'll live with. I'll amend that actually. If you can make a relationship, because I, I, I can't do long distance ever. Yeah. But if you can make a relationship where you don't live together, well, then maybe that's the next step of my advice. But in a way, I think it also, in a roundabout way, kind of proves my point and that you can really love somebody and you get along in a lot of ways, but the living together might not work. Yes. And it's really scary for people to make really big commitments until they've tested that mm. part of their relationship. I would say sexually is, of course, too. You should have some sort of sexual um, compatibility before you make a big commitment to a long-term relationship as well. But the living together one is one that usually people get really upset at me for saying. So, yeah. But what about the, in terms of like compatibility? I think that's the place where we often, we go awry. You know, uh, Christopher Ryan talks about how there are three sort of, uh, a relationship is a three-legged table and you could love someone, you lust after them, so chemistry. So, But then there's compatibility, which I would say like. Do you really like them? Because it's possible to have intense chemistry with someone. It's also possible to love someone, if you go by my definition of loving someone, to see them for who they are without trying to change them, manipulate them, coerce them, uh -huh. persuade them. But there's this other part where like, we're just fundamentally incompatible for whatever reason. Sometimes it's sort of surface level values, like, oh, you voted for someone in the last election who I don't like? Okay, screw you but other things you just might not be compatible long term 
I'm a big chemistry guy. I don't know, which is really annoying because like in every other point of my life, I'm going to be like the most discreetly <laughs> autistic person for measuring any possible thing I do. But when it comes to relationships, I'm just very big on chemistry. There are some people that for whatever reason, the gravity and the attraction is there. And that's probably not enough for a relationship. But that for me, that's like the foundational building block. That has to be there. I have to want to see you and hug you and love you and be close to you. And if that's not there, we, we don't have a real relationship. Um, from there... Uh, things like hobbies and shared interest. I feel like that's, I've heard so many different people in long-term relationships that have diametrically opposed views on that. Um, I know one couple where he told me that the key to his relationship was when they both integrated each other heavily into a lot of different areas of their lives because it allowed them to see each other, work with each other, build with each other, and that was really great. I've had another person that said, um, this couple was, I think, in their 50s or 60s, and the, uh, the wife told me, I love my husband, he is not my best friend. <laughs> um, and she had a lot of friends and she went out, she played bingo, she did all that. And she had her husband and he went out and he did his things and watching him did that. But, and they loved each other and they came together at the end of the day and they shared like household chores and everything. But they had kind of some overlapping group of friends, but they have very different lives and that worked really well for them. Sure. So this would be a question where I'd probably Google like what are the highest predictors of long-term relationship and find out. But just from what I've heard anecdotally, it seems like based on how you view your life and how relationships should be for you, you can get wildly different answers that are kind of person or, or that are uh, personalized to the individual. I really like this, this last point you made though, because it, it gets to the heart of like some Hollywood depictions of romantic love where it's this all-consuming thing. And this is supported by the feelings we get during the honeymoon phase, right? That's the you, chemistry part. You though. are my everything. Yeah. But in order for a relationship to be healthy, you absolutely have to have something that is life-giving outside of that relationship. Because when you look to your partner to be the end-all, be-all of your existence, that's not only terribly unfair to them and something that they could never look up to, but you deprive your relationship of that new, fresh energy that you can only get by engaging the world in interesting ways on your own, having some friends and some adventures that you explore and kick it with, and then bringing that energy back into your home, back into your relationship. It's, it's sort of like, imagine um, having one outlet that's plugged into a wall or having one plug that's plugged into an outlet, another one that's plugged into an outlet, and then these two plugs meet each other and they go, oh my gosh, you're just so amazing. I want to plug into you. And they do that. And it feels really amazing at first. But then after a while, you just have this recycled old energy and both of them are sitting around going, what happened to our magic? Well, the reason you had a magic is because you each were plugged into the world in very interesting ways. And now you're only plugged into each other and you're recycling old energy unplug for a little bit mm. and plug into the world in interesting ways and then come back together and delight in that together. Yeah, there's a certain dynamic what you're talking about here. And for some people, like Nicodemus, he's our, our, our co-host, co-founder of The Minimalist, he and his wife seem to spend 98% of their time together. And they're just like, and they're yeah. super extroverts and they really, but even they require the other 2% of the time to be a part yeah. to create that chemistry. Yeah. And Destiny, I think what we're talking about here, and I don't know that we're even disagreeing, if when we say that there are three main components to relationship, it's the like, the lust, and the love, the, the lust part is the chemistry part, and that is an important part. But as you, I think, alluded to, you can't sustain a relationship on chemistry alone. Yeah, probably not. There has to be. For me, I guess if I was to think of the like part, it'd probably be sharing like hobbies and interests, the things you can do together to have fun. Um, in my mind, the love part 
is almost always going to be defined by some level of self-sacrifice. This is something that I do that I really don't want to do, but I'll do it because I love you and I respect you and I'll even put myself out for it. Um, and those two parts are probably really important to, are not really important, probably essential to maintaining a healthy relationship too. Yeah. We got so many more questions mm-hmm. here. Some controversial debate topics uh, for the Minimalist Private Podcast: or abortion, big pharma, transgenderism, mm-hmm. and LGBTQ rights. Increasing the minimum wage, or maybe TK will say decreasing the minimum wage. I don't know. <laughs> the death, uh, the death penalty, video games, politics, book banning, gun rights, problems with the so-called red pill community, fat shaming versus body positivity, and we have a former employee who's going to call out the minimalists. Um, all that. We're trying to get to as many of those as we can, plus much more of less. But before we get to that, Malabam, what do you got for us? Here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners. Hi, guys. This is Christy in Chicago, Illinois. I'm a Patreon subscriber, and I wanted to call in with some thoughts for Natant in episode 403, who was struggling with both the decision of whether to become a parent and also whether there was a way to make this decision without sacrificing his relationship with his partner, who very much does not want to be a parent. There are so many ways that you could provide the act of parenting without becoming a parent. You could take a proactive interest in the lives of the children of your friends and family if there's anyone you have that kind of close relationship with. You and your partner could adopt a pet. There are so many who desperately need good homes. There are also thousands of already existing children in the world who could very much use a positive adult influence. Become a big brother or volunteer as an aide in an understaffed school or become a tutor or a mentor. If your partner was open to the idea, perhaps one day you could have a discussion about fostering. In most places, the foster system is a dismal place to be and a home of light and love would be such a blessing. If you want to exercise compassion, you can do volunteer work with the homeless or struggling returning veterans or volunteer in an animal shelter. There are so many ways to spread love in the world without procreating, if that is at the core of what you feel you're looking to express. And with many of these options, you could choose what speaks to your heart and soul without your partner being obliged to participate. I hope perhaps this might spark some useful non-binary discussions for you and your partner, and I wish you both the very best. Welcome back, y'all. Let's uh, let's do TK's tweet of the week. We're going to call it TK's ex of the week, but we were just bringing in ex-girlfriends. We ran out after a while. <laughs> <laughs> this one's from our good friend, Jessica Williams. She used to be the social media manager for The Minimalist. She worked with us for like eight years. And I feel like she totally called us out on this tweet. So um, actually, Destiny, I'm going to give you the opportunity to read this tweet and then you can agree or disagree with her. If Hitler had a social media platform, do you think he would have used it? If you have a TikTok account, your answer is yes. Mm. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, Destiny, I mean, uh, first, what are your, what's your initial impression from this? Because I have uh, a TikTok account. I felt, I felt called out because, like, the minimalists, I don't personally have one, but the minimalists have a TikTok account, and we share a lot there. And, and uh, am I supporting Hitler? I feel like it's just aimed at people that are on their TikTok all the time being really self-absorbed. But Hitler would have absolutely used social media, yeah. <laughs> and he would have been a TikToker for sure. Is, isn't the question if Hitler owned a social media platform That's rather right. than if he had an account? So, so yeah. So what are yeah. your thoughts on it, TK? So, 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 so I think she's saying that being on TikTok mm-hmm. is being on the platform of someone who owns it and is morally 
similar to Hitler. Oh, right? wait. Can yeah. I read that again? Man, yeah, I, I, totally I, I, I want to make sorry. sure I got it right. That's that's the reading I got. I'll give you another round if that affects your Oh, I think I, I might have even misread this. I'm sorry. Just cut all that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if Hitler had a social media platform, do you think you would have used it? If you have a TikTok account, your answer is yes. Ignore it. I just completely botched that. Oh, no. I read it the same way. Interesting. So what do you think, Destiny? Would, would uh, I mean, would have Hitler owned a social media platform? And um, am I using a a platform? I can't tell if that, is that supposed to be hit on Elon Musk or is it an attack on Twitter people's like vanity or what do you think? Well, I guess who, who owns it, yeah. TikTok though? Yeah, I, I, apparently the Chinese government, right? Huh. Mm. Yeah. You know, one question I'd ask, and, and, and by the way, we, we've talked about this before with things like buying diamonds, owning a cell phone. I am totally here to follow the truth wherever it leads. And I acknowledge that that might lead to me drawing a conclusion. Holy smokes. I'm contributing to all kinds of evil that I don't want to contribute to. And I might have to dramatically and uncomfortably change my lifestyle. That's always an open possibility. Right. Okay? And so I have no desire to deny implications or truths just because they come with that. Um, I think it's quite possible that at this point, Every company that we buy from has ties to someone or something, which if we knew the full story about, would make us vomit at the implications. Sometimes we comfort ourselves by saying things like, I'm going to protest this place because this corporation doesn't uh, support my values. I'm going to protest Nabisco. Or I'm going to protest Target. But it's like, okay, but you're still getting your gas from Shell or Amco. Well, the still best going example to of this was uh, people were protesting Anheuser-Busch, right, by not buying Bud Light. Yeah, but yeah. then they ended up buying a bunch of beers, I think, that were still owned by Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> yeah, or, or just buying something else, right? Buying your toothpaste from a company that's doing some other stuff that because you don't have time to do all the research, you would never approve of as well. Mm-hmm. We would call this virtue signaling, right? Which in some contexts, like I'm all for, don't we want to signal virtue in, in some respects, Destiny? Yeah, you stole my take, yeah. Oh. I always think that people are very quick to be like, oh, that guy's virtue signaling. I was like, virtue signaling is an important part of society. You know, you have to show people what you stand for and you don't always have an opportunity. If I meet you, it's like, hey, just so you know, I'm pro this, this, this. Sometimes it's easy to have a bumper sticker or a flag or a black score on Instagram or whatever you want to do to show people your particular view on something. Virtue signaling is only problematic when it's insincere and authentic, uh, meaning you signal one thing and you believe another, or when it takes the place of actual activism. Mm-hmm. So slacktivism. If your form of activism is just virtue signaling or posting things on Twitter, probably not okay. But yeah. By the way, let me highlight, we agree here because I think to do business well is to virtue signal sincerely because to, to serve others means that you want to send them some kind of indication that you're on their side. You're an ally. You're here to give them a good time or to provide them with high quality service. And they can't know that unless you signal it before they buy, before they come into the restaurant or the business or whatever it may be. What makes virtue signaling so repulsive when it is repulsive is when you do things like Destiny pointed out, you're, you don't really care about the people you purport to care about. You just want to be seen or you're doing the whole fire insurance thing, you know, like 
hey, black people, I know that I have a really expensive million dollar house and I'm in a nice, comfortable neighborhood and you're going to probably come over here rioting. So let me put up this Black Lives Matter sign as a way of saying, don't break in my house. I'm on your side. I'll take it down as soon as the riots over. I don't care about any of y'all. I'm scared of y'all. I don't have any friends that look like you. I don't support any policies or causes that actually improve your life. But hey, 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 hey. This is fire insurance. Don't break in my house. I, I always said they should just change those particular signs at those particular houses to, would you please come here last? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Desi, you have any other insights here? If, if Hitler had a social media platform, would you use it? Damn, I don't know. It depends on how big the social media platform is. <laughs> how lit is um, it? <laughs> man, what is it? It's not the free rider. Pro- it might be, um, it might just be prisoner's dilemma where there can be a behavior that's maybe not the best, but if you don't engage in it and everybody else is, you're at like a massive disadvantage. So I guess it depends at the end of the day on on what those disadvantages are. You know, you bring up, um, yeah, virtues. For a long time, I wouldn't extol my virtues. I'm a very virtuous person. Okay? <laughs> but the way that I always figured is like, well, listen, I'm gonna live my life. You know, people interact with me. I've never had any, I've been in this business for 13 years and I haven't had any huge, like horrible thing happen where I've fucked somebody over or literally fucked somebody and done any weird shit. Like nothing, none of that has ever, ever, ever happened. And anything that's ever leaked is usually me going above and beyond, like donating money to somebody by paying all my employees really well, et cetera, et cetera. Um, However, I learned this lesson around two or three years ago. There's a lot of people that are very invested in saying really bad things about me. And something that was frustrating for, I noticed, I start to, I try to view things more from the perspective of my fans is sometimes it's really hard to defend me if I don't virtue signal. Because then when other people say, oh, well, didn't Destiny say this or do that or do this and he's horrible and blah, blah, blah. All my fans could say is like, well, he's not really like that. But then it's like, well, what's that? So having these things out here, it's like, oh no, I do do this. I do do that. I do do that. Not only does it sell my kind of image to people more that don't have time to watch every single bit of my content, it also gives people that support me an easier kind of arsenal to pull out to defend me with. Like, oh no, look, he does this or that or that. These are important things. These are aligned with his values. Like, be aware of that. But you also seem largely unbothered by those critiques. Um unbothered is a word that can mean many different things. Mm, um, a philosopher's am, answer. Yeah, I'm largely <laughs> unbothered personally because why the fuck would I care what some random loser on the internet thinks about me? But from a business and social point of view, um, that's my job. It is literally my job to know what people think about me and how they view me. And when it comes to social paradigms, perception is reality. Perception, is, it, reality starts and stops with how other people perceive you. If you're in a room and 100 people think you're an asshole, you're an asshole. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you don't do. So yeah, like I'm unbothered on a personal level that people lie or make things up about me. If I was bothered by that, I wouldn't have survived here for so long. But I'm obviously, if people are saying things to tarnish my reputation or attack me, especially if I consider them to be untrue, then that's something that I'll actively fight against because that's, yeah, I don't want that reputation to exist for me. And that gets to the heart of why so many people are afraid of debate. It's not just the tension of disagreement. It's the knowledge that we do live in a world where most people, unlike destiny, don't have the ability to say, yeah, you vote in the complete opposite way as I do, but I still love you. And I know that we're fighting for the same things. Most people say, oh, you voted for that person. You hate everything that's good in the world, including me. Mm. Um, funny how my own goodness doesn't come into question, right? And 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 I, I think there is, some people call it cancel culture. People have different labels and I don't want to necessarily, I don't want to say anything that depends on that label being defended. But I think a lot of people are afraid to engage these discussions because it's like, oh, if it comes out that I believe a particular thing, well, I don't get to have a job anymore. I don't get to have friends anymore because people are so quick to substitute labels for logic and say, oh, you subscribe to that ism, you're a bad person. I call us the web. 
I think mm. that there's like, um, I think that what people will do is when you're having a conversation, you've got like this core thing is evil. And then you've got all these like little kind of branching points out. And what people try to do is they're listening essentially for like a key word so that they can stick you at some point on that web and then funnel you down into like this evil idea. So we oh, might true. be having a conversation about like, oh, what do you think about, you know, like LA? And it's like, well, you know, tax are high. The homeless problem is pretty bad. Oh, you don't like homeless people. You probably support the cops from moving them. Probably big capitalists. Capitalists support cops. Probably blue lives matter. Evil Trump supporter. But like they'll they they'll, <laughs> yep. they'll listen for like one thing yeah. and they'll try to whoop, funnel you all the way down to that. And I I point that out. My fans always say it now. Whenever we're listening to conversations, or sometimes people are talking to me, where I'll say one thing or somebody will say something, and then somebody will do this whole thing. We're like, oh, well, you think this and that and that and that. You must be this or whatever. And it's like, bro, take them where they're at. You didn't even get close to that. You don't even know why they think that thing. But yeah, I call, I call that the web. Yeah. That's what I, yeah. I love about both of you is the ability to have nuance on societally unnuanced topics. Because it's so easy to be binary in the sense that it's Republican, Democrat, it's atheist, it's Christian, whatever it might be, right? And as soon as I slap one label on someone, oh, you're a Republican, I instantly know 90% of their beliefs. And I think that's quite a, uh, it's a significant problem today because yeah. we feel as though we must adhere to those beliefs if I also put that label on myself. True. But I mean, like, that is a problem that we have today is that people are very bought into these huge tribes such that for 90% of people, if you tell me one thing about yourself, I can probably predict like 19 points of view of yours. If you tell me that you're a fan of Andrew Tate, oh, you're a fan of Andrew Tate. You probably think the World Economic Forum is corrupt. You probably think that ESG scores are destroying the United States. You probably think uh, DEI like offices are evil. Um, you're probably a supporter of Donald Trump. You probably think that COVID-19 was overblown. You probably think the lab leak is real. You probably think that vaccines are either ineffective or at worst are putting microchips in you. you like, I can predict, and like for 90% of people, they'll adhere to every single tenet of this like ideology. Why? Um, <clears throat> There's a, um, I think that, uh, ooh, this, it goes into a huge thing very quickly. I think that we you are, just drew like a four part diagram. There's like, there's, in like, two no, seconds. there's like, yeah, there's like a whole <laughs> bunch of things. I think that by nature, I think people are tribal, but I think that's okay. But the problem is our tribes have expanded really, really, really big. And that's not okay. I think it's okay to have a really strong tribe in council bluffs, Iowa, or really strong tr tribe in like Phoenix, Arizona or neighborhood of Phoenix, Arizona, because like, it probably makes sense that a bunch of these people are going to share a bunch of common beliefs, or there'll be a few tribes where you can like roughly sort them as such, which is okay. But the problem is our tribes have gotten so big that in order to adhere to that tribe, you have to subscribe to a ridiculous set of beliefs that might not ever intersect with any part of your life ever. And that's the problem that we have today, where like, if you do want to support Trump, well, if you're a supporter of Trump, you can't support the vaccines. You can't be okay with the FDA or the CDC. Don't you know that they're part of the deep state? Don't you know that that's part of the swamp? Don't you know that Klaus Schwab is an evil guy? Don't you know, like, it's, it's all rolled into it because you're not actually... Like your, your, your whole source of like epistemic authority and truth is like singularly coming from this thing that defines your borders. And you're not allowed to ever like sort through and have opinions or ideas about any of these things. You're just like subscribed to basically this list of ideas that you have to buy into mm. to be a part of that group. Do you feel tribeless as a result? I personally don't, but I've got a very unique background and everything that I think has helped to insulate me against that a lot. But also, I'm sure there are times where I mess up or I do, like I'm too quick to judge like a progressive for being an asshole or a Trump supporter for being an asshole or whatever. Like I'm, I, I'm not perfect, but yeah, I think I'm relatively unique and that I can, I'm insulated from a lot of that because of life experiences. I think that's part of why I'm so successful online too though, but yeah. I, I think hmm. I often 
delineate between tribe and community. And I, this might sound like a semantic argument, but just for my own uh, thought process here, a tribe usually unites against something, whereas a community unites around something. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think quite often what we do is we lack community wherever we are. And so then we latch onto a tribe, often online, and then there is some figurehead or avatar for that tribe, like an Andrew Tate. Mm-hmm. So I have a friend, this was something I was going to ask you later, we might as well talk about it now. I have have a friend who has been deeply influenced by this red pill ideology and is a big fan of Andrew Tate and often cherry picks things that I will certainly agree with. When he's strangely talking about being anti-materialism, I'm like, yeah, what that guy is saying right here in this 60 second clip makes a whole lot of sense. But what do you tell someone who has been so influenced by this red pill ideology that anyone who even questions it, they they refer to that person as brainwashed? What do you say to a person like that? Yeah. Put a hand on their shoulders. You say, my brother, you're lost. Um <laughs> It, there's like there's so much unraveling that has to happen. Um, people always do this. People always bring me on. This must happen with like psychologists where they're brought on and it's like, how do you cure depression? I feel like that's the type of question. <laughs> Somebody being like, how do you convince a hardcore? Tr- my mom is a Trump supporter. Okay, I can't yeah. convince my family. No, members. I'm not trying to. <laughs> the, the, no, I understand what you're saying. No, I want to like, be clear you, though. I'm yeah. not trying to convince him of anything. Mm-hmm. But we've gotten to a point where I'm like, yes, I agree with that, but. Can you understand the nuance behind this, right? Like this guy isn't Jesus, even though he is your Jesus, apparently. Is your question specifically in regards to like Andrew Tate or? Yeah. So I have a friend who has, I think, fallen down that rabbit hole and the on-ramp to that rabbit hole is someone like Andrew Tate. And by me saying this, I'm also not saying I disagree. I think Andrew Tate says some rather compelling things in Mm -hmm. isolation. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that when you pan back, he's not a total asshole. Yeah. Hitler was a very motivational speaker. (laughs) I mean, um, clip that, Danny. TikTok it. (laughs) I, something that, oh God, there's so many different ways to do this. one of the best classes I took, I took an AP psychology class in high school and it was the best thing, one of the best things that ever happened in my life because it also caught me at a time where I went to a Catholic high school and I was questioning religion a lot yep. and finding that, stumbling into that psychology class and that radically shifting time period of my life equipped me with a lot of really important like metacognitive tools to make sure that I wasn't being crazy, right? Like, oh, I really can't trust my memory sometimes. Oh, I really need to be careful when I'm searching for information. Oh, I really need to be careful when I'm weighing two different things because my brain is a very unreliable uh, narrator of my own existence, right? It tells me what it makes it feel safe and comfortable and navigates it in the world in the way that makes it happiest, right? That's a very important thing to be aware of. Um, There are like... when you, when you when you bring up things like Andrew Tate and the, and the Matrix, when I'm talking to some conspiracy theorists, there's a concept in philosophy. I think it's called illusory pattern perception. Uh, when you look up into the stars, you know there's not actually like turtles and dippers and like those aren't real. What we do is we see dots and then we connect them to make something that's not really there. Oftentimes when you talk to people that believe in like the Matrix, they have a collection of facts that are real. Bill Gates does own stock in some company. Um, at one point in time, this company did invest in this other thing. At one point in time, this thing that was invested in did do something bad. That's not really what you're saying. What you're saying is Bill Gates intentionally invested in this company to intentionally do this negative thing. 
you have any evidence of that at all. And what you find is a lot of people that believe in these grand conspiracies, call it the matrix, call it the deep state, call it whatever, is they have this illusion of patterns because they have a bunch of these dots. But when you ask them, okay, you've got all this hardcore evidence that all this horrible stuff happens. Can you give me one like smoking gun? Just one thing that really shows that BlackRock is actually trying to destroy company. One thing that really, because at the end of the day, what they'll hopefully start to realize, and if you're trying to do this with a friend, you have to be compassionate and patient, is they really have nothing. Mm-hmm. There's nothing there to demonstrate the causal link of all these events that they're trying to. It's just a bunch of like, discrete data points that they've put together in their head in a way that makes a compelling story. And they are compelled by these figureheads, these avatars, Mm -hmm. in in a way, because I think part of it has to do with their shamelessness uh, and their confidence. When you combine those two things together, and then, of course, people often do experience some sort of benefit. The person I'm talking about specifically, he's like, yeah, I was just feeling, I was in a really bad place. I was really depressed. And I stumble across this guy and all of a sudden I'm, now he's attributing everything good happening to him from this one realization. Now I'm going to the gym and now I'm making more money and all of these other things. And Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, uh, two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Also, it's really hard as humans to see counterfactuals with a similar trend with a different magnitude. Um, so for from a stats point of view, let's say that I follow somebody and just very basic, let's say my life improves 20%. I might feel really good. I might attribute it to that guy and say, look, my life improved. But if we did like a study and we had placebos and we had a whole bunch of other people that live the same life that I live, let's say that I improved 20%. Let's say everybody else improved 40%. Well, actually, that wasn't good. You actually... Yeah lost out. But it's hard to perceive that because when we see a trend line, it's hard to imagine that another magnitude of trend could have existed in the same direction. That's like sometimes you see like a company, like somebody might say like, this company lost 2% last year. Do you think that's good or bad? The the layman will say like, ooh, lost 2%. That's not good. If you're a little bit more intelligent, like, well, how did their competitors do? Because if you lost 2%, if you've got a stock portfolio and you're down 2% for the year and the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ are down 20 points, <laughs> my portfolio did really good. I might have only lost two points, but compared to the average, it did really well. And that's just not an intuitive thing that people yeah. do sometimes, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. By the way, by the way, people do that with the government a lot too, right? X happened because the government did it. If the government didn't do it, X could not have possibly happened. Mm-hmm. It is a fallacy. It doesn't mean that, well, I'll just leave it at that. But, uh, you know, one thing I'll say about conspiracies um, oh, no, I thought you were agreeing with the point that I would say, but that was a, you snuck in a little anarcho. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, this episode does come I was come thinking out. about people blaming conspiracies. You were thinking about the government building roads. <laughs> oh, I saw yeah, what you yeah, did yeah, there. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Sorry. I, I, I wasn't thinking of it, but can I say something about the conspiracy <laughs> yeah, thing? Yeah, real quick. I just want to yeah. say this episode comes out on 9-11. And Jesus. I, if we could all agree on one thing, wow. it's that that never happened, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you know, here, here's one thing I will say, say about conspiracies. I, I think in many cases, conspiracy theories are poorly executed attempts to construct a coherent worldview in response to the experience of being lied to by something very important. I think it's easy to dismiss conspiracy theorists as crazy because they do a very good job at making themselves look crazy. Usually when you know you're being lied to, but you're not given any more information than that. And you're left on your own to come up with your own picture of what actually happened. It's probably going to be crazy because you don't have all the information. You're probably going to be wrong, which is why most conspiracy theories are crazy and wrong. 
However, they're all grounded in a fundamental mistrust and skepticism that is produced by observing discrepancies, demanding answers, and being flat out lied to. And while I think we should challenge conspiracy theorists to support their views with evidence and we should criticize them when they fail to do so, I think it's important to not use that as an excuse to be distracted from the fact that many of them are right when they say we've been lied to about X. And I think it's important that we also move that spotlight to many of the powers that be and say, hey, why don't you tell me what really happened? Why are you lying about it? Or, okay, you're telling me the truth now. Why did you lie about it 20 years ago, 50 years ago, and so on? So I think that's an important thing. As far as red pill goes, I think it's, I think it's also important to make a distinction between red pill and, and, and the manosphere. Because the red pill, which comes from that matrix, is, is the idea of waking up from the dream, right? It's the idea of, 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 of coming to understand something that you were previously completely asleep about. And the manosphere, the manosphere is a particular domain of information that kind of has capitalized the usage of that term. But I think, I think when, whenever we've, we've all had our red pill moments, and whenever we have those red pill moments, we tend to be overly trusting of whoever is responsible for giving us that moment. It's part of our process of intellectual growth and philosophical development. It's actually a, quite a normal thing for most people. And, you, you know, I, um, you, you take a look at the autobiography of Malcolm X, for instance. It's like he has his red pill moment where he learns about the power of discipline. He learns how to break free from addiction, how to create wealth, how to feed his mind from the nation of Islam and particularly from Elijah Muhammad. Right. And at first, he's all in with everything, no skepticism, no mistrust. But as he evolves intellectually, his views become more nuanced. There are some things he's willing to challenge, some things he's willing to question while he still maintains his core faith in the religion. And I think we're all like that in a sense that you give people time. It's good to see people waking up. It's good if somebody goes from being lazy to working hard, regardless of who they're listening to. But after a while, they start to grow up, they start to branch out, and they start to hopefully assimilate other ideas. But one question I would ask a friend like that is I would simply say, hey, man, sounds like you've learned a lot from this guy. Here's a, here's the devil's advocate question for you. What is he wrong about? Yeah. You know, yeah. What's, what's one thing he's wrong about? Yeah. Because we all intuitively know that nobody's right about everything. And uh, even if he doesn't have an answer, just having to think about that will mentally prepare him to recognize it when he notices it. See, that's the spirit of curiosity that you both bring to the table here. Uh -huh. Do you have anything to add to that, Destiny? Yeah, you said one thing that I was really glad you said. I was going to harp on this a lot is that overly trusting of the person that wakes you up. The big problem that I have with people, um, I wish there was a better word than conspiracy theorists because it is very dismissive sometimes. Yeah. The one problem that I have is that like somebody will look at the government and the government will mess up. They will tell a lie. They will do something stupid. And what will happen is, is people will instantaneously fall into this epistemic, epistemic nihilism where all of a sudden like, I can't trust anybody. If you told me one lie, I can't trust anybody, which on its face is actually a really irrational way to approach lying, right? If a guy's on the ground and he's starting to pass out and somebody's like, oh God, like what's going on? And the guy's like, I'm having a diabetic shock. I need insulin. And somebody's like, hold on. 
he cheated on his girlfriend. He's a liar. <laughs> right. I don't think he's actually having diabetic shock right now because he lied before. You look at you go, well, hold on. Yeah. It's because he lied about this. <laughs> These aren't related at all, right? Yeah. Right, but if he has a pattern of lying, you mm-hmm. might be more skeptical at that moment. If you like, this guy's actually lied 13 times to me today. If he has a pattern of lying about those particular things, right? Yeah. Though I will say one interesting um, illusion, um, what would be the word? A, a, a pattern issue that we have is when things run well, you actually don't notice it at all. And sure. when something fucks up, you immediately notice it. Absolutely. So it's very easy to be critical of the government in a lot of situations, but the government also does a lot of things that are working really well. You just don't really notice it a lot. Like you don't care that every house in the United States, you know, roughly speaking, has like clean drinking water. Um, don't make a Flint, Michigan joke. Well, that's utterly uh, yeah. untrue. But uh, yeah. What would have you, you mean? Have, have you been to EWG.org? I forgot I'm in California. You guys don't believe in tap water here and all that wacky shit. I had a friend in California. Every time I was with him, I would drink the tap water just to prove to him that I wasn't going to get sick and die. But well, my it, bad. It, I shouldn't have used that example. Okay. But regardless of that. You don't get cancer in the afternoon from drinking tap water in the morning. That's not really how it works. But there are so many cancer causing. I mean, this is not woo-woo nonsense. It's uh-huh. just true that there's a lot of junk. And you can go anywhere in America. and you, It's not just in California. The worst example. Yeah, oh, and, no. I, right, but it, it, maybe it's the best example too, right? <laughs> yeah. Like it's okay to be, quite often we don't know about what's contaminating us, including this red pill ideology. Sure. Tap water seems relatively clean and I shower in it, but guess what? I, this is not tap water. I'm not drinking tap water because of the ridiculous stuff that is in the system that potentially has long-term micro negative consequences that add up over time. Okay, true. So instead of water, <laughs> take anything else. <laughs> Roughly speaking, the government keeps most things running like pretty well. We have a pretty complicated society and things seem to work pretty well. But if, if something goes wrong, or you can apply this to anything. If your parents are doing a good job, if something goes wrong, your teacher's doing a good job, if something goes wrong, you notice the wrong things very quickly. So you can very quickly build up this idea that like everything must be a lie, everything must be horrible. Um, which if, if you want to say that, that's I guess, fine. But then my issue is these people will immediately be like, I don't trust Fauci to tell me anything about vaccines, Mm -hmm. but I trust everything Tim Pool, Joe Rogan, and Alex Jones have to say about vaccines. It's like, why? If you want to tell me you just don't trust anybody, I guess, okay. But why would you trust these people? And then any answer they give you, well, what about the financial incentives of Fauci? Well, what about the financial incentives of alternative media? These guys signed, you know, seven-figure ad deals. You guys don't think they've got a financial incentive to, like, give you these kind of, like, anti-establishment talking points that they build a whole audience off of this? There is one key difference, though. Go for it. One key difference is that Joe Rogan's strong. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Absolutely Rogan. based. So, Joe so Rogan can beat Joe all Rogan of us can up. beat up your establishment <laughs> shill. Okay. When Biden wants to jump in the ring with Rogan, Rogan then tell me. That's so, good. Okay. That's so good. And, and, and maybe this. Well, I, I maybe you would disagree with me here, but I, mm-hmm. I think one one of one of the differences between private entities and government is that when private entities screw up the consequences are different than when government screws up. Uh-huh. Um, if I try to run a business and I don't generate a profit and take care of my customers, I get to go out of business. The market punishes me swiftly unless I'm rich enough to get the government to bail me out. Government, however, doesn't quite work like that. They can keep taking money from people that aren't even their customers and finance and whatever they want to finance. For for a lot of the people, and, and I agree, we, should be, we shouldn't be selectively skeptical, but a lot of the people that might be equally wrong are also people that are willing to come on public platforms and be debated. And that's an important thing. 
um, sometimes there's a kind of um, there's a kind of priestly class elitist attitude amongst those who anoint themselves to be the experts that we all must listen to, who say, this is what I think. You don't have the status to argue with me. You do not deserve to question my ideas. Do what I say, period. And if you question what I say, then you get to be labeled anti-scientific, which is an anti-scientific way of thinking by definition. And so I, I think people tend to trust you more when you say, look, I'm so confident in my expertise and in the rightness of my position that I will have a debate. Maybe it won't be with you, but I'll debate somebody because how else will you know how substantiated these ideas are unless I let you get to look at these ideas and see how they perform in the light of scrutiny? And many of these people, I think Fauci might be an example of that, don't seem to be willing to do that. And without speculating on why they're unwilling to do it, without being a conspiracy theorist about it, that is a move that tends to generate mistrust of people that are already doubting you. And I think there are a lot of people who, from a non-conspiratorial background, have had doubts, questions, and concerns, and they're just treated like they're stupid or like they're conspiratorial for wanting somebody to debate it. That's how a lot of people feel like ideas win credibility in their minds. Damn, he just red-pilled you. Oh, no, no, no. You changed your mind on, on everything, I'm sure. So... <laughs> I agree with some of these things. Here's the first thing I'll disagree with, and I'll do this till the day that I die, is there's this idea that like the government is free from consequences and private entities have to run themselves like a Swiss army. No, that's not what I said, that the, that, the, that the consequences are different. Government is not free from consequences, but the consequences are non-identical. I think they could be different, but I think you can find a lot of issues with private firms that operate incredibly stupidly and for a variety of reasons, like manage to carry on. I, I think that like- With government I, assistance. Sometimes, sometimes just because they're the largest player in a particular market. I mean, look at what what are iPhones like? Aren't iPhones alone like 60, 70 percent of like the cell phone market today? That sounds right. Yeah. Like 97 percent with like teenagers, like an insane like. But 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 I, I, I would contend that that many of these cases where there do appear to be these monopolies, it's because there is bureaucracy involved. Like a lot of people create a lot of wealth by, you know, talking the free market talk and thinking the free market philosophy. But once they have another we enough wealth to build out a bureaucratic team that gets them in bed with governments and creates artificial disadvantages for their competitors and so on, it becomes a lot harder to wipe them out, hold them accountable. And I think that's what we see in a lot of cases. But yeah, but for ahead. a lot of cases, like, I mean, there are monopolies that can exist, right? Like monopolies happen. They don't I, I, need the government. I, I, I to think do in it. nature, monopolies are incredible, incredibly difficult to form. But well, I think super I, depends on like, like so for instance, if we talk about like a geographic monopoly or an infrastructure related monopoly for ISPs, the idea that like in order for a new ISP to open, it's got to go and lay all the like that's just prohibitively expensive. Right? So, so we, we, here, here's the claim that I would make about monopolies. Mm -hmm. I would say monopolies are much easier to form in an environment where you have an institution that has a monopoly on violence that can help protect that monopoly. From competition. Okay. I would disagree. I think there are different ways. I think in some cases you can be right, but I think there are different ways where monopolies can just naturally form because of geographic reasons, because of um, cost to entry reasons. But I, I would agree with that. I, I think they can naturally form. I think they're difficult to sustain, but maybe we share sure. that debate for later. Time. I think that, yeah. Um, th yeah. And then we do agree there are different consequences of government. Vote people out if you don't like them, vote them out. If you really are upset with how they're acting or, yeah, they can be held accountable. A lot of these people are appointees. A lot of these people are appointed by people that are voted on. Like people should vote more. I think that's really important. Um, but Ooh, this is this is a, a point of contention between the yeah. two of you for sure. TK doesn't vote. Um, can we can we talk? Can, let's let's drill down to yeah. double click on this issue specifically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, 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 first let let's just assume that everything we're told about the voting narrative is absolutely unquestionably true, 
uh, and that I'm not a heretic. Even then, we're talking about a much slower timeline such that the difference between what happens in free markets is incredibly vast, incredibly vast. In other words, if the government screws up now, okay, versus if you and I screw up now, Mm -hmm. we get to be out of business and replaced by competitors who do better business than us immediately. Government, that doesn't happen. And not only that, but the power to shift the blame upon regime changes is so incredibly great that by the time anyone is held accountable, you know, those people are gone and someone just replaces them. And and by the time you see change, it's not the sort of thing that the market demands so swiftly from ordinary people like you and I. So I'm not arguing that they don't have consequences. I'm not arguing that you can't change Yeah, I'm not sure I would... I've this for a debate like this, I would need specific examples. This would be the general point I would make. And then if I I would find specific examples to support this one, because I know they must have happened. So in some ways I agree, but in other ways I might disagree on a private firm in some ways could weather way more negative PR, way more negative public backlash, just because of the fact that it might have a private financer. It might be the case that if I have a passion project that I feel really strongly about, I think that um, all children going to school should have like the brightest flashing neon shoes. I could run that at a lack of profit for 20 years if I had the money to throw into it because it's my passion project. I don't care what anybody thinks about it. But it might be the case that that's a really good idea, but the government program dies in two years because it's so unpopular. People are like, no, screw you. We're not going to do that anymore. And then it gets voted out. And now you've got something that if it was privately financed, that actually could have weathered a longer storm, but now because it was uh, subject to public opinion, it's dead almost immediately. One, one quick thing, and I love yeah, to hear what you it. hear about this. What you would love to hear what you think about this, but like from a market perspective, I love that. I love the fact that you are spending all of your money doing something that no one likes, so much so that according to your example, you can't make a profit because no one's buying into it. So what's happening? transfer of wealth. You're spending all of your money on something that you and you alone love. Your wealth is going away from you and it's leaving you. And at the end of this period where you with your deep pockets have poured into this passion project, what do we have? You're out of $20 million. That's market punishment. You didn't really get anything back other than the emotional satisfaction of creating something and supporting something that you like. And nobody likes that garbage that you created. Now that $20 million is in the hands of other people who get to do something that the marketplace actually rewards because people love it. And so even in a case like that, you may not go out of business but you eventually run out of money until you get to the point where you say, I can't afford to do this anymore, or it's so painful, I'm going to stop. In the case of the government, it's different because there is no money there to run out of. There is only the money that you have, and I'm going to take it from you and do what I do. And there's no amount of failure I can experience that ever stops you from being my customer because you're not my customer based on you liking what I'm selling at this time. You're my customer based on violence or the threat thereof. Sure. All I was saying was that like, because what if it was the case that after 10 years, maybe people really did like those shoes? That's a project that a private person could weather that storm for 10 years and sure. the government could have because it's so unpopular. Yep. Um, I'm just saying I'm pushing back against that claim that like the government is slow and unresponsive, whereas private firms are immediately responsive when there are there are times where the government can be very quickly responsive to things and there are other times where it can drag its feet. And there are times where private firms can be very quick and very responsive to things and then there are other times where they can drag their feet for whatever reason. How long? I don't know if you guys are tech guys at all. Oh, I- how long are you either of you? What did you work in before? No, yeah, I was in uh, wireless telecommunications. How long did it take for us to move on from uh, Adobe Flash 
Are you familiar with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vaguely. It It was was like a decade or more of people being like, and then I think it was, I think it was finally, I think it was Steve Jobs who put an announcement. I think it was Apple that finally said on Safari, we are not supporting Flash anymore. And people got mad. And that it takes was, someone to be a martyr like Yeah, that. basically. Yeah, the iPhone also martyred themselves over the headphone jack. Right. Remember when they did that in every other company? I think it was either Pixel or Samsung actually marketed the next phone as we still have the headphone jack. They did another next phone though, right? Right, right. Um, mm. But that's an example where, or, or look at, um, should social media be charging subscription fees? No, what a horribly stupid idea. And then Elon does it, who, I don't, listen, I hate Elon, so if I'm giving him credit, okay? Elon does something, we're gonna start charging for APIs and we're gonna start charging subscriptions. Everybody lambasted him. And now Facebook does it, Yeah. right? And now Reddit had their huge API change, right? So, and yeah. these are things that probably gonna happen before, but I'm just saying there are times where private firms aren't always acting in these like hyper competitive individuals' mindsets. Sometimes they're subject to the same silly whims and notions of like the public as well. well um, yeah. I, so, uh, and, and that's not my position. I would say mm-hmm. they're always subject to these silly things. I don't think people in the, the private market are any smarter than anyone else. I don't mm-hmm. think they're always making intelligent decisions they are just governed by a different set of incentives. And by the way, I don't know if it's stupid to charge subscription fees Uh for uh, social media. What I do know is that anytime you create change or anytime you add a change that people aren't accustomed to, people get irritated, people get mad, but we'll see. It may turn out in 10 years, we'll all think it's brilliant. It may turn out in 10 years, we'll say our intuition was right, that it's stupid because it's a process of, of discovery. We don't always know if we're right at the beginning. Sometimes we find out that we're mm-hmm. right. Sometimes we found out that we're wrong. What do you think um, about yeah. when, when it comes to like the union of private and public stuff? So if you look at like SpaceX or Tesla, yeah. do you think that's like bad because the government heavily incentivized it? Or do you think it's good because a private investor made like groundbreaking advancements in these areas? Because I look at, and again, to be yeah. clear, I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. I hate Elon Musk. Okay. <laughs> but I think that SpaceX and Tesla are two of the coolest things the United States has contributed to the world in the past 10 or 20 years. Putting having the rocket land again is really cool. Um, and actually making real advancements into electronic cars is really cool. I don't give Elon credit for both of those things. He pushed really hard privately. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it could have happened without the massive government subsidiaries for buying electric cars and the contracts that they awarded to SpaceX. So how, I guess, how do you view that in your anarcho-capitalist I'm, I'm, mind? Yeah, I'm pretty consistent with what I believe. And mm-hmm. I actually believe what I believe. And when someone like Elon Musk comes along and does something cool, I don't go, oh, I changed my beliefs because this guy is cool. And mm-hmm. I'm not even saying that he's cool. I think Elon Musk you is- You hate America and our rockets. <laughs> just no, say it. Just so, say so, you hate them. So, so, say it, you it, want us to send all of our astronauts <laughs> of the ISS on Chinese rockets. That's what you want. Here's what I'll say. Here's yeah. what I'll say. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll be a little it. more direct because I, I don't want to sound like, I probably sound like I'm saying, no, well, my beliefs are my beliefs. And that's no, not what I mean. No, you're good. I'm just messing. Yeah. What, what I mean is that when Elon Musk- chooses to go the way of government subsidy to make things happen. Mm -hmm. I can say, I think what he made happen is really cool. In the same way, you can put a gun to my head, take my wallet and go invest it in something and make a lot of money. And I have the ability to make a distinction between the anger I feel at what you did to me and the absolute brilliance that you display by taking that money and investing it in really cool ways. Those are two different things. And so What Elon Musk has done with a lot of that is absolutely brilliant and genius. Do I agree with the subsidized component of it? No. And I would would caution against committing the fallacy of saying that because he did it this way, that is the only way it could have been done. Okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. The analogy that immediately came to mind is like if 
TK went and robbed a bank and then used that money to cure children's cancer. Uh, and I think most of us would say he deserves a pardon, but it's not like he did something that we would all applaud. I mean, we'd applaud one thing, but the other, we're saying here the means justify the, or the ends justify the means here, right? And, and ultimately, um, I, I don't know whether or not that is true. I, I think I'm somewhere between the two of you where for me, it makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, the SpaceX thing is not interesting to me at all. And that's okay. I'm not saying that it, it's it's intrinsically interesting. It just doesn't fascinate me, right? By the way, not everybody thinks that that's the best use of money, right? Think about the fact that you live in a country that's poured a whole lot of money in there. If you have a diverse set of friends, if you've got a diverse network like you referred to, you'll find out very quickly that there are a lot of people in this country who think, oh, there are a lot of problems this nation has that that money could have gone to. And I'm not so sure I think that's the best approach, yeah. right? Yeah, I think that's fair. Speaking of money, let's uh, transition over here to a question from Helen on Instagram. What's the ideal minimum wage for Americans? All right, I just need a specific number, TK. <laughs> <laughs> and why do you hate uh, frontline workers? I'm first. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this is incredibly difficult, but I have to make a distinction between a moral philosophy, a social philosophy, and a political philosophy. A moral philosophy is your opinion about what is ethical versus one ethic, what is unethical. A social philosophy is your opinion about how societies ought to function and what best leads to human flourishing. Political philosophy refers to your set of opinions about the role that legislative force ought to play in bringing about the implementation of your moral and social philosophy. It's possible for us to have identical moral and social philosophies, but completely different political philosophies about the best way to get there. One of the most interesting underrated facts about minimum wage is that the minimum wage has racist origins. Although all of the rhetoric that is used to prop up and support minimum wage today is from well-meaning people who say, what I'm fighting for is for people that are poor, disadvantages, dis disadvantaged and unskilled to be able to make a living wage. That is the rhetoric today. The initial rhetoric that gave us minimum wage was about black people entering the marketplace, outcompeting their white counterparts because of their lack of formal education and their willingness to work harder. They were undercutting, out-negotiating their white peers and minimum wage laws were introduced in order to say, no one can pay below this amount. And what happens when you do that is you say, all right, you who are doing the paying you now have to be more demanding about who you pay. And so one of the unintended, I emphasize, unintended consequences of minimum wage is that it has incentivized the people who do the paying to take shortcuts to avoid hiring the very types of people that minimum wage laws are designed to help. And so whether you believe in minimum wage or not, I encourage you to take a look at the history of it because the history of it is very different from the contemporary rhetoric of it. Secondly, I agree with the same people who agree with minimum wage about wanting everybody to make as much money as they can. I hate poverty. I hate it when people are working two jobs and they're stressed out. They don't have time for their families. They're doing a bunch of things they hate. They're being underpaid. They're not being respected. I absolutely hate that. I, however, reject the rhetoric that minimum wage actually solves the problem. My opinions on this is similar to like my opinion on marriage. People say, well, what do you think about gay marriage? Well, you know what? 
I think two human beings, period, whether I agree with them or not, can do whatever, are free to do whatever they want to do together. But you know what the real solution is? The real solution isn't saying, hey, let's go the way of gay marriage. The real solution is says is to say, why is the government involved in the marriage business in the first place? Get them out. The debate is over now. What you have are human beings freely choosing to live they, the way they want to live in accordance with their moral philosophy. And we are free to disagree with one another in the same way that you can look at my wife and say, I don't like her for you. I can look at whoever you're with and say, I don't like them for you. And we can all have our little arrogant opinions about who we think we ought to be living with. But the government is out of the marriage business. The solution to to the problem is sometimes getting rid of the entity that is creating the problem in the first place. $25 an hour. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Damn. So... Um, I, the papers that I've seen but what, on... What if they're gay married? Is it more or less? If they're gay married? Yeah. Um, are they lesbians it, or guys? Oh. <laughs> hey, may, maybe... So Save that for the next question, I want you to have the chance to, to flesh <laughs> out your view on, on whatever it is. But I love the opportunity to kind of uh, to volley on this and, and push back. Because if, if this opinion is the right one, mm-hmm. I want to have it. I'm just convinced that it's... It's only effective in the sense that it appeals to people's emotions. It makes everybody feel good. But unfortunately, I think what does so much damage to the poor is this market that exists for people who are privileged to do things that actually hurt the poor, but it makes them feel less guilty for their privilege. And I think that's what people are being sold. I I think people are being sold rhetoric that doesn't actually deliver on the promise. So I love to kind of volley on this. Yeah, we're not going to volley much because I probably don't disagree that much on this. Uh, I'm just not, I don't don't feel very strong about the minimum wage. Every paper that I've seen on minimum wage seems to show that minimum wages are good for small wage boosts as long as the minimum wage is set a little bit higher than what the market wage would normally be. It seems to be the case that if you're an employer, you can get away with paying a little bit less because of a variety of factors, because of monopsony power, monopsony power, things that prevent people from seeking other employment. And having a minimum wage there where somebody might be paying $8.50 an hour and saying, you got to pay that guy $10 an hour, you know, might be okay. But with especially a lot of progressives talk about, especially the term living wage, when we start talking about sending wages at $15, $20, an hour, um, I know in Seattle, they went back and forth with a few studies on this. I believe that the ultimate conclusion to that was what I think most economists in a theoretical world predicted, which is as minimum wages start to climb significantly above what the market would ordinarily set it at, firms are going to look to cut out lower skilled employees. You're just... I mean, like, and as a business guy and as a whatever, like, you're not going to pay somebody a a ton of money that they're just not worth, as mean or as bad as that sounds. And so then you have to ask yourself at the end of the day, like, well, here's an employee that if I could pay this guy $12.50 an hour, I'd do it. But 15 or 20 an hour, I'm just going to cut that part of my business or I'm going to automate it or I'm going to hire one person and hope they're really going to work them twice as hard. But like it just doesn't make the sense to pay that wage. So, yeah, and, I'm and like, that's I'm, not a hypothetical, by the way, that but, that actually happens. What, what, what you just said, people tend to do. I know. Oh, you yeah, know, I know. I know yeah, you that's know why this. I got McDonald's and stuff. Yeah. yeah that are now starting yeah. to and everybody joking. Oh, I thought you were going to automate it. But, but they are. They're working on it. And yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. Yep. And, and that is what will happen because you're you, like businesses are. Yeah. You've got costs. Oftentimes labor is your biggest cost. And then you've got revenues. And if costs are starting to exceed certain revenues, you're not just going to, it's not a charity, right? You're not going to pay out infinitely. Yeah, but um, devil's advocate here. And I didn't think I'd be the one playing the devil's advocate and you two agreeing <laughs> on this. Mm-hmm. But um, it seems to me that those automations would have taken place either way. And this is just accelerating it. The automation, yeah, it's, it's, I probably agree. 
but the, but there's going to be a minimum cost to running those automations, mm-hmm. and that minimum cost might actually exceed certain market wages. It might be the case that the market could always support eleven fifty an hour for a McDonald's worker, but never fifteen an hour. So if you were to graph out like the cost of the AI, the AI cost might go down, but it might asymptotically approach a value that is still higher than what a market wage would be for a certain worker, right? Now, if it's asymptotically approaching a, a very, very, very low point that would be below like $7 an hour or $5 an hour or something, then yeah, then AI would have been inevitably taking over all of these jobs, but that might not be the case. But I don't know what the specific numbers are on that, but yeah. And, and, by, and by the way, minimum wage laws do not mean you are required to pay someone that amount. What it means is if you hire someone or keep someone, you are you can't pay any lower than that, right? So you still have the option of saying, I'm outsourcing this, I'm eliminating this position, I'm increasing this person's workload, or I'm demanding more skills out of the workers who were previously only making $11 an hour, so much so that the very basis for the laws are now putting them at a disadvantage. Let, let me give like, like an example of what this could look like hypothetically with something that has nothing to do with people because it might be easier for people to see the implications. Imagine Josh has a flat screen TV, color TV. It's got all the bells and whistles, Wi-Fi, everything. And he's selling it and his price is, let's say, $100. Mm-hmm. And you have this rinky-dinky, old-school 1980 television set with the antenna sticking out. It's black and white and I got to turn the knob. And you're selling yours. You can't afford to sell it for $100 because you wouldn't be able to compete with the likes of him. But let's say you're selling it for $30. Mm-hmm. And I come along and I want to buy a TV. And even though yours is only $30, his is just much better than yours. And I get ready to pay him for his TV. And you say, hold on, man, hold on. I got to be able to move this TV. I got to be able to feed my family, whatever. I'll drop the price to $10. And I go, okay, his TV is way better than yours, but $10, man, that's a deal. And then I say, how about five? And you go, okay, I'm willing to do it. And right as we get ready to make our transaction, a cop comes along and says, hey, no, I'm not going to let you do that. That's unfair to destiny. That's not right. This guy can't live on $5 from now on. No one is allowed to buy a TV from anyone for less than $100. Now, what he's just done is he's not only required me to pay at least $100 for any TV that I bought, but he's also made it illegal for you to sell your TV for anything less than $100. Who am I going to buy a TV from? We don't even have to think about this. I'm not buying your TV for $100 when I can pay the same amount and get his TV for $100. He now has an advantage over you because the price is the same. This is one of those unintended consequences when you make it illegal for people to pay a certain amount. We only focus on the companies, but we fail to focus on the workers. Minimum wage laws are also a limitation on people's freedom to negotiate as well. And so when we only focus on one demographic and say, look, here are some people that you ought to feel legitimately sorry for. And we get tunnel vision on that and we ignore all of these other negative consequences. We fail to account for the fact that other people are being hurt by it right now. And the people that we're helping in the short term, they're going to be hurt in the future. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree. Um, the only thing that I would say why I can, I can I can understand there being like a moral argument for a minimum wage is it might be the case that there are some firms that I think maybe shouldn't exist. Like for instance, I'll say there's a firm that would be profitable, but it's only profitable than employing people for like $2 an hour. There might be an argument to be made that like, listen, if you can't afford to employ 
somebody for at least six or seven dollars an hour, you probably just don't deserve to exist as a company. Um, but then there's also there's other questions being asked there, which is why are people choosing to work for two dollars an hour? So if you, I think that there are ways to solve poverty, or ways to fix poverty in the United States, but you have to be really, really, really careful when you start to fudge with market forces sure. because you start to create a whole bunch of these external victims to your policies that you're not seeing. And you bring up being able to sell your labor as, as an actual, like a good example of that. Um, another great example of that. What? I don't know if I'm going to run into more problems with you over here. Uh, <laughs> another California policy is a uh, rent control. Okay. A horrible way yeah. of managing housing stock. And when you see rent control- I'm totally on board with this, but okay. I'm not uh, a NIMBY either. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, rent control is a way that like the guy in the unit is doing okay and nobody can deny that. If you've got the unit, you're good and you're rent controlled. But the two harmed parties you don't see is one is- People see this party, but they don't care. It'll be the owner of the property because now they're kind of getting screwed because they're not going to renovate. They don't want to do anything. They're not making much money. Yeah, but everyone but, hates landlords. So it's yeah, not, so that doesn't care. But the yeah. thing that you don't see is all of the people that could move into the city otherwise now don't have the opportunity to because there's never going to be new construction. There's never going to be new units. And there's not going to be a, an adjustment of people in their consumption of housing, which might change as life goes on, but they won't change what they're doing because they've got like a rent controlled unit. Um, mm. I don't know how common this is, but like I've got multiple friends in LA that have like multiple apartments and stuff and they don't ever want to give up their unit in LA because it's so nice. Right. I know people here that live in amazing areas for like 1200 bucks a month. I'm like, what? Yeah. And like, yeah. And they'll have like another apartment in like Austin or New York or Miami. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not getting rid of this. Right. And overconsumption of housing seems like a dumb phrase, but it's true. And they're, especially in New York city, this would happen too. You've got an old couple, uh, all the children move out. And now you've got a three bedroom apartment that's owned by, you know, mom and pops. And it's because they've got an awesome rent controlled unit. They're not going to move, but yeah, rent control is another example where the victims are largely invisible. They're external. Yeah. And if you raise a minimum wage to $25 an hour and you go into any firm, and you see employees getting paid 25 an hour, you're like, this is great. We, we're successful. But you don't see all the people standing outside now that like don't have jobs. And, yeah. and, and you, you know, it's also interesting too that like a lot of the larger corporations, people, people love to hate their Walmarts. And while I understand it, when, you, when, when, you're, when you're driven primarily by hatred for the rich, it also makes it easy to exploit you because then you can use, hey, let's get the rich to smuggle in a whole bunch of policies that the rich can afford to sustain that actually hurt the little guy that you want to help. And so this will be another example of, of the minimum wage laws. you like, you know who can afford it? Walmart can afford it. They can afford to handle the minimum wage laws. It's often why these types of corporations have a team of bureaucrats who are constantly out there lobbying for them for policies that they can afford to handle, even if it hurts them a little bit, that their competitors can't afford to handle at all. Big pivot here. Ryan from Patreon has a question for us. What are the positive and negative effects of video games on adults and children? Is there such a thing as a healthy amount of gaming? <laughs> Destiny, I don't know if you're the right or the wrong person to ask about this with respect to a healthy amount of gaming. Now, you are a gamer. You make a lot of your income associated with at least you know, a I component. I mean, I used to be a professional gamer. That was my early streaming yeah. days, yeah. R right. And, and so at least even now, your your income is associated with gaming, right? Mm -hmm. But if we set aside the the financial aspects of it, it seems to me, and you've even changed my mind a, a bit about this, that there is a you know, cognitive benefit to to gaming. Yeah, gaming to me is just like any hobby. Like there are ways you can participate in it in an incredibly healthy way, and there are ways you can participate in an incredibly unhealthy way. Um 
you know, if gaming is something that you enjoy and if it's not taking away from your ability to clean yourself, maintain a job, maintain healthy relationships, maintain a stable schedule, and it's something that's really fun for you and it's like a craft you own, I think it's fine. I think it's great. I think you should play games. It's fun. Um, but obviously, if it starts to cut into other areas of your life, probably not good. Um, and then depending on the types of games you play, um, not to get super elitist, but there are types of games you play where you can pick up really valuable life skills, especially in social types of games um, that could theoretically help you in other parts of your life. What do you mean by that? Mal is a, is a gamer here. but I was like, very excited about this question. <laughs> what games do you play? Um, so I mostly play fantasy RPGs, but I also enjoy puzzle games, games that uh, play with the butterfly effect where you can explore different decisions and how they affect it. Most of the games that I play are very story inter integrated mm -hmm. rather than like, you know, like an open sandbox like Minecraft. That That's just not very compelling to me. And the visuals sure. usually hurt my eyes. Gotcha. Um, there were two games that I played. Uh, one was called Rust. It's like a shooter game mm -hmm. with groups of people. And then there's another horrible game. I shouldn't say horrible. I'm sorry. It's not a horrible game. There's a game <laughs> online called Eve Online, okay. which is like a big spaceship game. But especially Eve involved managing huge groups of people. And I learned so many things playing Eve that I carried over into my real life business experience that were so important. Such as? Um, oh, man. Because um, that's a strategy-based game, right? It's a... I don't want to say autism simulator because it sounds like a bad thing. It's just, it's, it's so much. It's like the kind of thing where like, if somebody saw you go home and play, they'd be like, why you have like a second job? Cause yeah. it's yes. like managing like groups of people, managing trade, managing numbers, managing spreadsheets, They've managing finances, project management. Yeah, it, it is. It truly is. It truly is. Um, well, I, well, I could do hours on this, but so for a couple quick things, Here's one. If we wanted to do a new ship doctrine to go and build ships a different way to go fight people and blow people up, something that's really fun is get a bunch of people on board with an idea, start designing, and then head down the road in that process. And after a couple times, we've run into these really stupid uh, bumps to where it's like, ah, shoot, we should have figured this out. We should have countered this. Um, one thing I learned, um, and the advice of another person, was any time we're going in a direction of a new project, it was essential to nominate one person to just be the asshole that said it's not going to work because of this or this or this or that. Um, for one or two, we stepped away from it entirely because that guy brought up really good points. But for the rest, the points that he brought up would strengthen the overall vision of the project that we had, that we really wanted to put, you know, long range missiles or whatever on our ships. And you say, listen, you're going to get destroyed by this. If you're going to do it, you need something. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're right. Sure. So if you have a really good idea, advocating somebody to work in opposition to that idea to kind of keep you honest, I think is really important for project management, for feature creep and, and scope yeah. of project, whatever on like software. Yeah, that's really important. Um, a second thing that I learned, this is a general life people management thing. If you have a whole group of people and you're like, guys, we need to do this and this and this, and then you walk away, nothing will get done. The mm -hmm. most important thing that you have as a leader is accountability, right? Looking at a group of 10 people and saying, guys, that needs to get cleaned up does nothing. Looking at one guy and saying, John, that needs to get cleaned up and it's your responsibility makes all the difference. So when you're dealing with groups of people, having individuals that are held accountable for certain things is the, it's the difference between everything getting done and nothing getting done. Um, another important thing is the, the, something that seems so stupid is 
morale and excitement were mm. more important than individual pilot skill for this game because you can have 10 people that are really good at the game and they're ready blah 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 but if you can get 150 people super excited and super hyped up they're bought into your vision they like your charisma they like your project you can get so many more people on board and engaging with you in a highly productive way than if you had far fewer people or a large group that was like kind of half hours of late whatever like the difference in motivation yeah there's there's like a million different things but yeah like managing groups of people online like that yeah. there are so many skills that I learned in that game where when I come to the real business world i'm like oh this is yeah this it carries over one to one is really important yeah i believe I, I believe that and yet still whenever i see even you playing a game while you're talking to someone else I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated because i don't have that ability to multitask that way mm-hmm. and uh, but when i when i see you doing it it also feels like you're doing some sort of separate job like i i have only so many hours in a day and I'd rather spend that two hours personally doing something else that feels productive to me. And this mm. isn't a judgment about the person playing the game. The reason I don't find it compelling is because I don't have infinite time. And if I had infinite time, I think I'd probably find the games more compelling. If you can do that, then amen to you. Because I constantly in my day wonder, like, am I playing too many games? Am I staying in bed too much? Do I masturbate too much? Whatever stupid thoughts pop into my head. I'm like, I could be spending every single second you know, optimizing for my life. I, I can't do that. Or maybe I should more, but like, yeah, it's just a matter of balancing out. Like if you're, if, if you're playing seven hours of games a day, you can probably take one hour and go outside or go to the gym or work on a project or build a hobby or whatever. You can probably do a little bit more, but if you're playing for like yeah. 30 minutes to maybe an hour every night or whatever, it's probably okay. But yeah, um, I think it's okay. I, mm-hmm. I guess where, where I have an issue with myself here is I'm always asking that question. Is this the best use of this time? Yeah. And never, is the answer yes to video games. And sometimes it could be to watching a movie or to doing something that is would be considered by society a lazy task. Why, for, I'm curious, why watching a movie over playing a video game? I don't know. I, I simply don't find it as... It feels like I'm doing work and there's some sort of interactive piece that the movie piece is much more passive. Just a hater. But that's the difference between that is active versus passive entertainment. Some people like to have their brain engaged in a different way. Some people want to be able to take a step back, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I do think you find there are programmers that will work for a big company and they hate coding at this place and they just is the worst thing ever but then when they go home they've got their passion project that they manage and they'll go home and they'll code for another eight hours every night because they yes. super love it but That's yeah right. i guess it just depends on your engagement with everything yeah and by the way great comparison to make watching tv versus playing a video game i'm not trying to hate and ruffle any feathers but if you're a parent and you watch tv for six hours a day and you're worried about your child playing a video game for the same amount of time well what they're doing might require more critical thinking skills than what you're doing. I understand the concerns. Yeah. That doesn't cover everything, but it's worth taking a look at. But I, I think part of the problem here is not the, the game, but the screen time. Because I believe if, if these children were playing chess or checkers, things along those lines, there wouldn't be as much of a concern. And I do think there is a basis for limiting the amount of screen time just because of what it tends to to do to us dispositionally. So I think that's worth considering. I agree with the TV thing. I grew up in that era where parents would literally say to kids, you're spending way too much time on the computer. Get off the computer, go watch TV. (laughs) (laughs) Really, mom? (laughs) And now they're effectively all the same thing. And, And I think it gets back to the point that I was making earlier. I actually think, I would probably benefit more from playing certain games than passively watching TV. The The question is, like, what is compelling to you at the end of the day? Yeah. Question here from Jeannie on Patreon. I'd love to hear your thoughts on transgender children. My daughter has been very girly and boy crazy all her life. At 11, she stated that she was non-binary and later identified as trans. 
She now lives as a boy with her father who affirms her new identity. We used to have shared custody, but now she's completely cut me out because I won't pretend she's something she's not. Is this ideology ripping families apart? I mean, certainly ripping families apart. Let's couple this question with Tiffany's question because they're certainly intertwined. What are your thoughts on transgender women competing in cisgender women's sports? Okay, so two different things here for sure. These are both trans questions. So we can even broaden it to LGBTQ issues. Um, But let's start with Jeannie's question. Her daughter, who has, as she said, been very girly and boy crazy all of her life, all Mm. 10 or 11 years, at age 11, she discovered that she was non-binary, and then beyond that, she now identifies as trans. And specifically the mother here, Jeannie, and I sympathize with you because it's got to be difficult when you have one worldview and you want your daughter to be a particular way, and now they are not your daughter. It's it's your son, and and you're being told to use language that might be totally jarring to you. So what Jeannie is saying, though, is like, hey, her father affirms her identity. I don't feel compelled to do that. What are your insights for Jeannie? Something that's happened recently over the past couple of years, a few years, I guess, actually, that I don't like, but it's very challenging, is a lot of the trans stuff has become less about sexual, um, less about like gender identity and gender expression, and, and it's shifted a lot into kind of like an aesthetic And I think that that's really damaged our ability to understand a lot of the conversations. Like, if you're gay, it means that you're a guy that wants to have sex with and be in relationships with other guys. If you're a lesbian, you're a girl that wants to have sex with and be in relationships with other girls. It's kind of hard to have, like, there there is, like, a gay aesthetic, but, like, those are, like, gay people. And you don't really have straight people, like, being like, I'm gay, because it implied, like, some pretty concrete, resolute things about, like, the style of relationship and your sexual orientation. I feel like with the trans stuff, I feel like it's gotten so much different. I just, I need to stop fighting these people. But I just fought with somebody for a little bit yesterday on Twitter who was like, yeah, I know cis women. So cis meaning cisgender, meaning we would just say a lot of people say, like, a normal woman, born as a woman, right? I know a cis woman who identifies as a trans woman. I'm like, what are we even what are we even saying now? And she's yeah. like, well, it's like, you know, because, and it's like, you, you run into stuff like this to where a lot of the trans stuff has gotten wrapped up in aesthetics. And then you've gotten to the idea that like kids like aesthetics. I mean, they're kids, they're looking for their identities. They're searching for themselves. They always do wacky, crazy things. But the difference now was that whereas before, you know, I could look at something like, okay, you're goth, you're emo. Okay. You're, you know, saying you're suicidal because your girlfriend broke up with you and you're 14 years old, whatever, you'll grow out of it. Okay. This is a phase. You're, you're fine. But now with the trans stuff, it's a lot different because one, I can't say it's a phase because that's transphobic. Mm. And two, it implies hmm. uh, potentially medical or other sorts of um, augmentations being made that make things a lot scarier and more permanent to deal with. And it kind of, it's starting to fundamentally undercut a lot of our ontological views of like what are men and women, right? So to be super ultra crystal clear, um, I think it's possible that children probably, especially around period, uh, not period, sorry, uh, puberty, will start to realize they're trans if they are. But I think that if you've got a child that's starting to realize they're trans, um, two things need to happen. One is everybody in the life of that child needs to be there to support that child in whatever's happening, irrespective of your political belief. So if you're a conservative and you hate trans people, like grow up, figure it out. This is for your child. If you're a progressive and you super love trans people and you're excited about it, your kid might not be trans. Grow up, figure it out. Um, and you need to make sure that there is critical support 
for that child. Like support, meaning you love them, you care for them, you do whatever. Critical though, meaning that like, let's figure out what's going on because there could be a number of other problems in your life. It might not necessarily be that you're trans. It might be that you feel excluded. You feel like an outsider. It might be that you watch certain people online that you feel like closer to now. Like there could be other things contributing to that as well. That's important to figure out too. So um, yeah, that's a hard one, but man, it's, it has to be critical support from parents that aren't trying to push a political affiliation and are, are able to kind of hone in and identify what's going on with that particular child. Yeah. yeah I, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. We often couple our religious or political beliefs in a way that actually harm our, our children as they're trying to discover who mm-hmm. they are. And it's possible to uncouple those things and actually to see this person for who they are. Look, I know we have different beliefs or opinions or whatever, but let me set that, let me set that aside for a moment. That's why I was excited to have this episode because we're talking about things we don't typically talk about on this show. Mm-hmm. But also, um, I, these are things I generally don't have much of an opinion on. I don't have beliefs around most of these topics. Do you have any kids? Yeah, yeah. Okay. A 10-year-old daughter. Okay. Yeah, and and I mean, I know what I would do if she came to me tomorrow and said, hey, I'm, I'm now a, a man or a boy. I'd say, okay, well, tell me more about that, right? Mm-hmm as opposed to saying, no, you're not, or as opposed to saying, yes, you are as well, right? I would say, tell me more about that. And I would get really interested in that. But until that happens, I don't have a belief around all of these that I feel so fervent that I must debate these topics. I've set down most of my, most of our beliefs are just belief clutter in our lives. We, we pick them up so we can identify with a group. Mm-hmm. We pick them up so it says something about my identity and who I am as an individual. Or we pick them up because it makes me right. And for, in order for me to be right, I need other people to, to be wrong. In order for me to fuel my own self-esteem, then I must have these particular beliefs around these issues. We also have this, this issue of concern clutter. Because we have access to this glowing screen in our pockets and it's feeding me all of this information, I now must not only have an opinion about these things, but I'm morally wrong if I'm not concerned about all of them. And that narrative I've set down a long time ago just because I realized it was kind of making me miserable because I was the type of person, yeah, I'll, I'll have this opinion about all of these things. I must have an opinion about everything. And usually when people call into our show, they're like, oh, wow, you talk about a diverse range of topics. No, there are a lot of things we're talking about today. And I think we're going to be talking about abortion a little bit, trans issues we very rarely talk about. Although we talk to trans people on this show all the time. They're just human beings. And I talk to them like they're human beings. And if you're in front of me and you want me to call you a woman or you want me to call you a man, I'll do that. I don't have a problem with that. But I also understand the other side. Some people feel as though they're being assaulted with a a brand new ideology that didn't really exist or certainly didn't exist the way it exists now, even a decade ago. Yeah. One quick thing I want to modify, because I know you didn't intend it in this way, but you said, if you're a conservative and you hate trans people, I just want to add to that. If you're a conservative and you absolutely love trans people, but you disagree with them or have concerns about them, you too are invited to listen, to learn, and to love them in spite of those differences. And I I think that's how you meant it. Um, Sure. Secondly, I think the, the abandonment of opinion, the abandonment of belief has become a contemporary shortcut to peace. We live in a culture that seems to think in many ways that relativism is the only way for us to get along. 
to deny that there is any truth, to deny that anything is right or wrong, to deny that there is any difference between healthy and unhealthy. And we just got to stuff our opinions and, and, and sort of just like nervously laugh, no matter what you say to me. You know, 11 year old can say, hey, I found a 30 year old that I want to marry. Like, oh, okay, I support. Come on, you know you're nervous. <laughs> like, what does the world look like when you can't even be honest anymore about the fact that you're nervous? Yeah. about the fact that you have some concerns. And so I don't, I don't subscribe to the philosophy of relativism. I believe there is room for us to be dignified human beings who love each other, respect one another, and learn from one another without having to pretend like my opinion and your opinion are the same. Right. But I also, at the same time, don't have to have an opinion about everything. Absolutely. If there is an 11-year-old who wants to marry a 30-year-old somewhere in Omaha, that has nothing to do with me. And why are you going to go to my city? <laughs> <laughs> and point to me, Jesus. <laughs> For the listeners at home, he accusatorily pointed his pointer finger right at me. You, you were the 11-year-old in this scenario. Sorry. Uh, but I, you, I well, don't... I think that would have something to do with me, but... But we differ there. We differ. Right. But I don't have to have an... We, we agree in the sense that I don't have to have an opinion about that, Right. I think I'm morally obligated to have an opinion about that. Okay. You're maybe obligated to have an opinion about the theoretical um, scenario, but you can't, sure. it's impossible for you to have an opinion about all 8 billion people on earth. It's not so much having an opinion. I think it's the idea that there are some moral standards that not only do we personally subscribe to, we also legally and ethically prescribe them to every other person in society. Yes. Sure. So we will have an opinion on like, if, like if somebody was like, yeah, so, you know, the wife was really rude to the husband. So he, you know, beat her until she was within an inch of her life. I don't think anybody's like, oh, I don't really have an opinion on that. That's just their lives. I think most of us would say that's wrong. And we are legally and ethically prescribing to them that you ought not do that. And you will be punished right. for violating this social norm. Yeah? Sure. Yeah. I want to say something to Jeannie, because I know if we have more space for this, I'm happy to discuss this for another 30 minutes. But I know we're, I know we got other things we want to discuss. So I, I do want to say this to Jeannie, because I think this this cuts more to the heart of the issue. And I, and I think it's very important when people have debates about these sorts of things that they ask themselves at the outset. What are we after? What is this debate for? Like, mm. like, what are we trying to get to by discussing this issue? Because I think a lot of people just jump into disagreements without asking themselves, what is the goal of the discussion? Now, the easiest thing for us to do here is to pontificate philosophically about our difference of opinions. And, you know, I can make you feel justified in, 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 in validating what you think. Uh, another person could argue against you and make you question yourself. And you're just right back where you started. You, you know what you think. You know what you feel. You know what you believe. And no matter how much I may validate you, you, you're still there and you're still alienated from your daughter. And that's not where you want to be. You're alienated from your child. Yes. That's not where you want to be. And so I would say you don't have to pretend to believe anything that you don't want to believe in order to be curious enough about someone to try to understand where they're coming from. I'm going to use something that has nothing to do with this broader discussion because I believe it's easier for us to think critically when, when, when it's not an emotionally hot button issue. Suppose your child comes to you, regardless of their race, and they say, I hate everybody of this race. That's... Whew. That's something, right? And that's something we probably can all agree on is like, uh oh, that's a concerning issue. Yeah. Even in that circumstance, you are not going to get anywhere by whacking your child upside the head and be like, that's not the right way to think. Mm. The starting point is, what's up? Yeah. Talk to me. 
because we don't know what happened. Did you experience something that made you feel this way? Like the best entry point to being able to connect with that child and have a relationship with them that allows you to know what healthy support looks like, that allows you to be able to be a part of their lives is to say, hey, talk to me. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. No matter what it is, sometimes our children are going to be drawn to things that are in a nebulous category where we don't have easy answers. Sometimes they'll be drawn to things that they have the right to be drawn to. Sometimes all of us, no matter what the topic is, our children will be drawn to things that are legit concerning. In every case, the starting point is curiosity and connection. You are better off being a part of your child's life. Your child is better off being a part of your life and you don't have to lie to them in order to love them. Sometimes we tend to think that by listening to a person who has a different view than ours, we are misrepresenting the belief that we have. But when Professor Sean and I hang out and he says something, I don't go, hey, Sean, you know I don't approve of atheism, right? Hey, you, you do know that I'm a theist, right? He only needs to be told that one freaking time and he knows. Now we can just have a conversation about life and I can listen without needing to throw up a flag that says, just in case it looks like it by how awesome I think your ideas are. I'm not an atheist and I don't approve of atheism. And sometimes this fear that we're not properly representing uh, the church, we're not properly representing our faith or our morality, it makes us feel like we can't just be quiet for a while and hear another person tell us where they're coming from without flagging and letting them know they disagree. In most cases, once you've told a person what you think about something, they no longer suffer from an information problem about what you think. They suffer from a connection problem with you. I think be curious and look for an opportunity to connect and silence can take you so many places. A few questions, ask non-judgmentally. You don't have to agree you don't have to believe the same things in order to say, I love you enough to try to learn from you and see where you're coming from. I think what we were talking about here a moment ago, and I, that's beautiful, TK, but we were talking about tribalism, right? And I think one of the problems here when we have these sort of adversarial or disgusted reactions to anything uh, where it is... We don't even take time to get curious about it. It's because we've picked up an ideology from a tribe and I don't even know why I have that belief system. And that's what I was talking about earlier with respect to belief clutter. Yeah, I have certain beliefs and I, don't, I wouldn't call myself a moral relativist, although I'm probably pretty close. If it weren't for truly evil things that happened in the world, like, yes, a child being abused repeatedly, especially sexually, like to me is just fundamentally evil. And how can I say, well, in some world, that's not immoral. I, 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 I've looked for arguments to, to say, well, yeah, maybe somehow that is not immoral. But to me, it just seems purely evil. The problem is when we moralize everything then mm -hmm. in response to that. Um, well, am I supposed to just, are you want me to argue against the child being abused? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, no, I, I, I agree. Do, do, yeah, it's, there's definitely... I, being a parent should be one of the biggest exercises in externalizing um, some of your views of the world and trying to do things that might be uncomfortable for the benefit of your child. Um, I think I, based on things I've read online, I haven't gone to a, a college or anything yet, but I feel like I'm a pretty ADHD heavy person based on a, now a lot of research I've done because my son was having issues relating to ADHD in school. And the question came up very early on of whether or not to get medication for him. I have a really 
because of toxic masculinity or whatever, I have a really hard time taking any medication. I just don't like it, okay? Mm-hmm. It's very emotional, very stupid. I understand that. But I just don't like the idea of that. I don't know if I would ever be on a long-term stimulant or whatever for anything, even if I got prescribed one. And when my diagnosis came for my son, that he was immediately obvious, heavily, heavily ADHD. Like between classes would have to crawl through like a resistance tunnel to like discharge energy between classes of very, very huge issues. Yeah. Um, and I had to make a decision of like, well, are there things we can do in the house? Are there other ways we can compensate for this? And at some point I, I kind of have to think like, is my job as a parent for my son, is it to make sure that he subscribes to every single value that I have, that I'm imparting all of those on him and force him another way? Or is my job to set him up for success as much as possible? Yeah. Even if that might mean putting him on a slightly different trajectory than what I would put myself on. Mm-hmm. And after a lot of thought, I kind of ended up with the latter where it's like, I don't know if I'd ever take a drug, but I'll try it for him. We'll see how it works. And it immensely improved everything in school and everything like relating to that. And you know, maybe in a few years, if he decides like, oh, well, I don't like the way this affects my mood or whatever, then he can quit. That's fine. But um, yeah, between the research I did on that, his positive outcomes, and then talking to other people with ADHD, the story that I got over and over again from every single person was, I hate that I had this drug in college. I wish I would have had this in high school or grade mm. school. I hate that it took so long to discover this. It would have been so helpful to get this so much earlier in life. And then I'm just thinking like, say my son makes it to high school and now he's, you know, screwed up all his classes and he has, you already have all the difficulties of adolescence and growing up and he's in a split parent household because me and the mom are together. Like, do I want to throw one more thing on his plate? And he's like, dad, why couldn't I just have, you know, some, um, I don't even know what the name is. It's not Vyvanse. It's something different. He's not like, why couldn't I just have this thing to help me? And I'm like, well, Nathan, your dad doesn't like drugs. So, you know, deal with it. I mean, I would have felt like an asshole. Like, what am I doing? That's not my job is to, is to impart every single thing I believe and force him to live my lifestyle. It's to set him up for success as much as possible. Even if I might be doing things that maybe I wouldn't necessarily do for myself. Yeah. Can we spend a minute or two on, it's related to this question from Tiffany, uh, mm-hmm. women, women's sports and, and trans athletes in women's sports. Yeah, they shouldn't be there. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, of course. In, yeah. In, all, in all sports? No. Okay, let's talk about it. We have gender divisions in sports because we're trying to, um, we're, we're, we're trying to, the, the, by the way, I wasn't expecting that answer <laughs> from, from Destiny. Oh, well, I mean like, yeah, we're saying that like women should have a protective category because of um, different things related to uh, f- female biology. And so they get to compete there. And as soon as you start putting trans women in that category, you kind of break open the whole point of that category existing in the first place. What's the steel man argument to allow trans women into women's sports though? Um, the steel man argument is if you is <clears throat> if trans women are going to achieve equal social status as cis women in society, they need access to all of the areas more or less that cis women have access to, one of those being athletics. And if we don't allow them access to that, a biological male um, turned trans woman that begins taking hormones is never going to be competitive in the biological male category. So by saying trans women can't compete with cis women and can only compete with cis men, you're essentially barring them from all sports. Right. Everybody ought to be able to do what he said, because you essentially said, what's the best argument against your position? And he gave it better than most people who actually disagree with him. I do that with every argument. Yeah. It's very frustrating to talk to somebody that there's a lot of debaters where I'll ask them a question and I call these like the level zero objections Mm -hmm. and they like haven't thought of it at all. And I'm like, you you argue this all the time. You even think like somebody be like, I think that abortion should always be legal in every case. Like what if an 11 year old gets raped? Oh man, 
well, that's a really hard one. It's like, why, wouldn't this be like the first thing you would think about? But no, I agree. Being able to yeah. argue both sides is really important. Yeah. 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 It's very frustrating when nobody's even thought of the other side. Yeah. There, there, we, there, there's, oh, I'm sorry. Go well, ahead. so we actually have a question on, on abortion here. So let's dive into that. It's from Anita on Facebook. In regards to abortion, death penalties, and end-of-life decisions, why are we as a global society still debating when life begins and ends? That's funny because that question can be asked by both sides of the debate. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's a question that's framed in a way where I have no idea what <laughs> <Yeah>. Anita's <laughs> beliefs are yeah. and what she even wants to accomplish with this. And I think it's a perfect question for a discussion like this, even though it's essentially, it's one question, but it's three questions, abortion, death penalties, end of life decisions. I assume we're talking about euthanasia here and one's own autonomy to be able to end one's own life or the life of a family member who is giving you permission uh, to do so. Do you have any uh, initial thoughts? Because I've seen... um, I, I assume you two probably, and this is why it's fascinating to me. I don't know what TK's beliefs are because we don't have these discussions because I don't have a need to know what his beliefs are around a particular topic to be his his close friend. In other words, he hasn't read the catechism from front oh, to back no. yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what I can tell you is... Don't worry, 50% of Catholics don't even know what the catechism is. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, he grew up Protestant, so he knows the Bible. They must think he's really strange. I grew up Catholic, and and no one in my church knew what the Bible even was, really. It was just like this little book that was there as like, a, uh, I don't know, reading material between breaks or something. No lie. No lie. Um, sorry, Catholic Church, but I am Catholic, and I, I got your back. There was a uh, an event I went to, and I was speaking one time. I didn't even notice. Um, and a woman came up to me afterwards, and she says, it was all a Catholic event. She says, you're a Protestant, aren't you? And I say, what? And she says, you're a Protestant. I go, I'm Catholic. She goes, but you used to be a Protestant. I say, how'd you know? She says, he quoted the Bible. Uh, <laughs> I thought she was going to ask you to sign her Bible, maybe. <laughs> she was like accusing me like I did something bad. Like, hey, we need to go to our CIA together, lady. <laughs> Steering it back to the, yeah. this is one of those topics that is so contentious that because it is, this is one of those rare instances where it's mostly binary. Like you can't get half pregnant. You can't get half an abortion. And so it's a topic that's fraught with a lot. And by the way, I think the people who tackle this masterfully are stand-up comedians because you it requires some level of levity in order mm-hmm. to be in order to discuss something without people wanting to you know, get out the pitchforks and, and drag each other to their point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, can, comedians have an easier time because they're just pay, poking fun at things, right? It's pretty yes. easy when you don't have to give a concrete, resolute answer and have yes. people follow behind. But um, I, I think that something that people have a really hard time understanding is we, we argue about trans issues a lot. People say that like gender is a social construct, right? Which is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's two huge issues with this. One is just because something is socially constructed doesn't mean there's an underlying fact of the matter. And two everything is actually socially constructed. All ontologies, all categorizations of things are socially constructed. Um, The idea that, you know, like the arm is a separate thing from the body, which is a separate thing from the leg, like the universe doesn't recognize these distinct categories of things or that this rapper, it's all just matter, it just floats around. And as people, as humans, what we do is we instill on the world, we project patterns and we draw boundaries around things in the ways that I believe provide us the most utility, right? It makes sense to identify 
identify different stages of development. It makes sense to differentiate a chair from a table. It makes sense to have these categories because when I communicate things to you, it's meaningful. If I ask you to go get me a sandwich and you bring me, you know, like um, a ham, there's like a (laughs) breakdown in communication. So it's good that we have these properties. The issue that we run into is, and this might tie back into some of our earlier things, is we don't realize the um, we don't realize the subjectivity of the categories that we've drawn, and then sometimes we want to come, we want to make very strong moral statements around these categories that are ultimately, at best, fuzzy around the edges, and at worst, entirely fictitious. So. Um, one example of this is the abortion debate. For 99% of our lives, we don't really have to ask, what is a life? I can just look at you and we can see, you know, assuming you're not a Trump voter, you probably, I'm just kidding. No, no, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm not politically partisan. I'm sorry. For most people, we can see that the way you act, the way that you function is like, obviously, as a living person, right? The only time this question becomes really vital is right at the very, 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 very beginning. And then right at the very, 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 very end or during times of great accident, right? Somebody head is decapitated or a huge coma or something like that, right? And we want to come and say like, oh, well, obviously life is blah, 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 blah. So this is the obvious answer. And it's like, is it? Like our definition works 99% of the time, but is it actually like a 100%, you know, this is like the real definition that comes from the natural world and blah, blah, blah. I'm not fully convinced that it does. Another another really great example of this is like, you know, what should the age of consent be? 18 years old, obviously. Like, should it be? There's probably some 16-year-olds that know what they're doing. There's a lot of 25-year-olds that absolutely don't know what they're doing, right? Yeah. So that's like another area where like, oh, well, obviously, biologically, developmentally, we know that 18 is right. It's like, not at all. That's an entirely arbitrary boundary that we've drawn. Um, but then the issue comes from, we have these subjective ontological categories we've drawn barriers around, but then we want to bring in the morality, and morality doesn't generally function in binaries. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to say that's a little bit right and kind of wrong. We typically want to say, like, this is right and this is wrong. So, yeah, I believe that things like abortion, the issue you're running into is you have this kind of fuzzy subjective category that you're trying to bring in very hardline moral stances on, and that's a very, very difficult thing to do if you're not willing to recognize the limits of the initial categories that you've drawn. The fuzziness, though, is is up for debate. But here's what I'll say a couple of things. So mm-hmm. first, when it comes to moral claims, it's possible to make moral claims in a nuanced manner where you say, here's a situation that's complex. It's made of multiple parts. This aspect of it is wrong. This aspect of it is permissible. This aspect of it is noble. And, and we can do that. We can uh, parcel things out. I have a question for you, though, before I go any further. You said everything is a social construct um, and, I, and I know that you're you're not a moral realist, but do you believe that that's true also of of truth value? When, when I when I say a proposition is true or a proposition is false, do you believe that that's sub- subjective, or do you believe that there are truths that exist independently of our preferences, perceptions, and taste? Maybe yeah. not, maybe another way to, to frame yeah. that is: Are there situational truths and underlying truths? Is well, that he's, what you're it's essentially a question of like epistemic anti-realism. Um, I mean, are, are there are there any things of which it can be said that's a fact, whether TK likes it or not? I'm out of here. I actually got to use the bathroom. You, <laughs> you keep arguing okay. with yourselves. <laughs> and, and just an everyday example mm-hmm. for people that are listening, so it doesn't sound so abstract. Mm-hmm. An example of this would be: If I say I have one billion dollars in my bank account, that would be false. Mm-hmm. because it doesn't correspond to a reality in which there's a bank account with my name on it where I have a million dollars. And I believe that's objectively false. Even if I don't like it, even if I wish it were something else, 
that there is there are truths to be reckoned with independently of what I wish. Yeah, so you are um a good example of this would be like uh there are three like properly basic truths I think that people refer to. You've got like the law of identity, things that are are, you've got the law of I think non-contradiction, yep. which is a thing can't have two conflicting properties at once. A thing cannot or a thing can't be two different things at once. Yeah, yeah, so um a thing a, a thing cannot um be and not be at the, at the same, same time, time. Yeah, and a, in the same sense. Yeah. And yeah. then the law of the excluded middle, which I think is a thing can't have contradictory Either properties. Either A or not yeah, A. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a guy, a math guy emailed me this once because I've had this question posed to me before. I'm going to butcher his response. But I think that um, the way that those truths work is those truths are constructed on tautologies, which are true because they are, kind of like how all of math is constructed on tautologies. They're true because they are within that given system. But like external human thought, like uh, external human existence, whether or not those things exist independent of us, I'm not sure what the answer is. But I would say that like the type of truth, a mathematical truth of like, is is one equal one or, or one plus one equals two, is that a social construct? Probably in a, in a, like, I think logic with a capital L functions a little bit differently than like, is a chair a distinct thing from a wall, I would say. Yeah. I might be a little unsatisfactory, but we're also hitting the limits of my philosophy knowledge here. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So when we deal with mathematical truths mm-hmm. or mathematical claims, we're dealing with formal systems of logic. Yeah. And, and we know what it's like to step outside of those formal systems and reason about them. How to we can make claims about formal systems without participating in the formal system or presupposing the the truth of it. When it comes, wait, to, can you though? Sure. Because I, can you make a claim about a formal system? Because any claim that you make, by definition, has to be a part of said formal system. Yeah, but but in order to create a formal system, I can just assume an arbitrary axiom. Axiom. You can, but once you've assumed that axiom, every, this is what I mean when I say math is built on tautologies. Yeah. Once you've assumed the axiom, everything is built off of. That right, necessarily, but, right, right. Yeah. But what I'm saying mm-hmm. is, I can step outside of that formal system and I can make judgments about it without presupposing the axioms of my system. That's what I'm saying. Wouldn't you have to presuppose axiomatically everything, like ZFC, like when we talk about like math or whatever? Don't you have to presuppose things about axiomatic things about math in order to have statements about math? Like if somebody were to say, like, I think two plus two equals three, I would say, okay, well, you're clearly playing by different rules, so I'm going to disregard what you say because you're not playing by my system of logics. Wait, what are you asking me about that? I, I guess I'm what I'm we I'm probably not disagreeing. I'm just not understanding the verbiage. When you say that you can step outside of a system and make judgments about it without presupposing anything, what do you mean by that? Meaning that I can make up a game, a story, or a set of rules, mm-hmm. and then I can at a meta level make claims about that game, that story, and that set of rules without participating in it. I leave for two minutes sure. and you let them talk about meta ethics. Here, let me come out of the, the yeah, abstract. Yeah, go for it, yeah. what, what, what I'm trying to get at mm-hmm. is I, I get where you stand with moral claims, but what, one of the distinctions you made when we were arguing about moral values earlier is mm-hmm. that we can know that that chair over there exists independently of our personal preferences and tastes, mm-hmm. okay? Because we can see it. Truth is not something that we can see. Right. Truth is the attribute of a proposition that corresponds to reality. It's an abstract conceptual thing. So do you believe that truth exists independently of our ability to see it or or there, there's nothing that is objectively true? Um, 
These are these hit above my pay grade. Is it possible that I can be wrong about something? So so if someone yeah. says if someone disagrees with your position on abortion, is it possible for them to be wrong? Is it possible for their position to be untrue? Or is it all reducible to just so you don't agree with them? I've gotten so many good emails back and forth from different, usually it's from math majors that will argue math realism or anti-realism or whatever. But the idea is like, is one plus one, is that like a feature of the universe? Like, does math exist independent of human thought? And I was like, well, I've had one banana and another banana, I put them together, I've created two bananas. Um, and I've had really good arguments back and forth where one sure. guy is saying that like, um, a, a, a phrase uttered sometimes by people that fight against philosophy, science people is, things like math and physics have an uncanny ability to line up with real life. So yeah. They must be real. It must be a property sure. of the universe. And I had another guy, a PhD math guy, researcher who emailed me and he's like, it's interesting that people say that if you take one, 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 and then you bring it together, like what have you made? And you know, I would say, oh, well, obviously four. And I was like, that's not always true. Some people might just call it like, for instance, if we take like um, four piles of sand and we put them together, it's still just one pile of sand. We've taken four, right? Sure. And when he, and he had a lot of examples like that. And he's like, we don't realize how much kind of intuition loading we do or pumping for a lot of these examples where we give it. It's like, oh, well, obviously this is the case. And it's like, well, two can come together. And sometimes you can get three from that in the case of like two parents coming together, making a child. So yeah. well, all I'm trying to do, this yeah, sounds very you. dodgy. You. Yeah. As you're asking me like, does truth exist fundamentally yeah. or whatever? I get really careful about that because every single time I go like, you know what? Actually, yeah, I think that a priori, we are granted with the ability to understand certain truths of the universe. I get like four philosophers like, oh sure, yeah, sure. what about this, this, this? And I'm like, fuck me, I guess I'm an idiot, Never mind. <laughs> Josh, hang Sorry, tight. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Hang tight, because I, I, know, I know he's listening to us right now and being like, these clowns are gonna be way in the sky. I'm just being considerate of our audience right, here right, right, too. Right. I, I, I think That's I can- That's my add, main job. Sure, sure. Um, so let's say you had a debate with Trent Horn about mm -hmm. abortion. I mm -hmm. encourage everyone to watch it because I thought the way you two respected each other, mm -hmm. the way you delved into it with nuance was absolutely great and, and a great model for how discussion should be had. Mm -hmm. And I've seen both of you engage other people on these topics in a way that just made me facepalm at sure. you know, the, the lack of productivity in the discussion. All right, so- Concerning Trent Horn's position on when life begins and when people have rights, which is very different from yours, mm -hmm. contradicts yours, mm -hmm. we could say one of three things. Trent Horn's position is true. Trent Horn's position is false. Or Trent Horn's position is neither one of those things and it's just different from yours. I wonder here if this is goes back to the non-cognitivist anti-realist position I take on morality, yeah. where when I have these arguments, what I would actually say is like, Trent's position doesn't feel very good. Because generally, mm. when I have moral discussions now, what I'm usually doing is I'm saying like, okay, what? how do I feel about this? This Like, here's three scenarios. How do I feel about them? What do my intuitions say? And I was like, well, they feel this way, they feel that way, and they feel that way. Okay, can we make a rule about our intuitions here to create kind of like guidelines moving forward for how we should or shouldn't act? When I think of morality, um, I actually think of, do any of you have music training? No. I do. Mal does. What <laughs> instrument? Um, bass, guitar, and voice. Oh, a little okay. bit of piano. I think of, um, I actually think of morality, like I think of music theory. Mm -hmm. um, for music theory, I can give you a lot of different types of chords. Well, so like if you draw these notes and you play them and then you draw these notes next, I know exactly the feeling it's going to produce within you. It's going to feel like a lot of tension and then it's going to feel like resolution. Yes. But I'm not dictating your feelings to you. What I'm doing is I know how you perceive things and now I've kind of created a structure or a guideline to, to map onto how you perceive the world. Mm. And when I think of morality, I think of it that way. So wait, you, wait, is it possible for a different culture to perceive those notes differently though? Or are you saying that is the underlying 
fabric woven into the universe? It's a little bit of both, okay. but that's yeah. a way more complicated thing. But, but, but for yeah. me, I'm not pushing on morality now. Mm-hmm. I'm pushing on a different category of objectivity, which is logic and truth value. And so mm-hmm. it sounds to me, I don't want to be, I don't want to misrepresent you, yeah. but it sounds to me like when it comes to, and I'm just using him as an example because I've seen your debate, when it comes to Trent Horn's position on abortion, your ultimate conclusion is, I can't say that Trent Horn's position is false. Correct. It just really bothers me and I don't like it. Yeah. And then my then the next step of my argument would say, I think that if we all subscribe to that, I think it would bother all of you more than my position would bother you. Mm. That's like the non-cognitive kind of thing. Like my position yeah. feels better yeah. because that's why, because we we got into the back and forth a lot of like, where would you apply this? And I would go to end of life and apply it or beginning of life and apply it. And I would say these, of all the places where you apply mine, yeah. you're going to feel bad way less than if you apply it in all the positions of his. Here's right? a debate yeah. I want to see you have. Okay. Um, in most cases, you're pitted up against uh, people that are pro-life and you're kind of representing a pro-choice position, Mm -hmm. but I see you as having arguably the position that would afford you the least amount of allies and make the most amount of people angry (laughs) because you're more pro-life-ish in the sense that you disagree with a large section of the pro-choice camp Mm -hmm. in where you define life. You disagree with a lot of the pro-choice in in an obvious way. You define life as as later and and the, the individual rights is coming at a later time, but that's still a very conservative kind of position that puts you pretty close to uh, pro-life after a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to see you debate somebody in the pro-choice camp and argue over that issue and just see how that goes. So that's my sure. personal I had a debate with Matt Dillahunty over bodily autonomy, which was an okay debate. Yeah. No, no, it was a really yeah. good debate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think that uh, what happens here when we get into these discussions, they begin to devolve into every theoretical um, or hypothetical, you know, we, we start handing out exceptions to the to the so-called rule here, right? Uh, I'm going to pivot to a, a different question because we, we've got a bunch more here. We'll I'm have to try just go have coffee sometime. <laughs> <laughs> My Linda has a question for us. Can you talk about why Congress bans books that explore diversity, equity, and inclusion in education, but avoids legislation that would mitigate gun violence? Well, this seems like two completely different issues to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> Man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess we could talk about them. Like, why does Congress not legislate on abortion, but my Netflix subscription increased by three dollars oh. last month? <laughs> Explain that one for me, Obama. It, yeah. <laughs> to be charitable to Marlinda's question here, um, I, I think where where she's going is like, hey, um, the government is banning books. Then because they're perceived to be harmful, but I perceive guns to be harmful. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, the obvious answer is it's it's what the public perceives as as the most harmful thing, right? So the public is going to say if if you're an intelligent pro Second Amendment and, and you're not a delusional person, right? What you say is guns are really fun. I enjoy having them and I like shooting them. I like some aspect of self defense. And I do think that there is a principal idea to a citizens being armed against the government. I, I like that idea, right? These are, but I acknowledge that just by virtue of having a gun in the house or having more guns in an area, there is an uptick in gun violence. Might be people killing themselves. It might be children getting into your gun safe. It might be the fact that just having guns in areas increases the amount of lethal violence. But that trade-off, much like the trade-off we have for the First Amendment, some speech is damaging, is dangerous, is harmful, mm-hmm. but we accept some of the damage and the danger for the freedoms that we enjoy. And that's the argument for the Second Amendment. But the, but a person that would make that argument would say for things like DEI, diversity, equity, and including or inclusion or whatever, like that stuff is just commie neo-marxist talk so get it out of here we don't need it or whatever right but that would be the 
I, I'm not still manning the second thing better, but I still man the second amendment one. So, okay, I'm a progressive. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> but you're touching on some important things. I, I think something to remember when we, when we observe kind of like a, a apparent contradiction between, hey, uh, politicians or, you know, congressmen are supporting this, but they're not supporting that. It's important to remember that, 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 that there's a hierarchy of belief. Uh, in a person's worldview, there are many different beliefs, but not all of those beliefs are equally important to that person, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe my beliefs about who the best NBA players are, are less important to me than my beliefs about my wife. But if we're just having a conversation, a, a casual conversation, I'm not going to make a whole bunch of nuanced distinctions to tell you which beliefs are the greatest priority to me. I can argue passionately about things. But then if you really push me, I might say, yeah, to be honest, that issue bores me. We were talking about that, you know, during one of our breaks where it's like there are certain issues that we'd argue about passionately, but we don't really care emotionally about them. So just because you have a belief doesn't mean it's high up on the rank. Mm -hmm. And with politicians, Sometimes they are highly incentivized to take a strong stance on something for which there would be a great cost if they're kind of squishy about it. But then there may be other things that are really controversial, high social cost to pay if you take a hard stand on it. They personally don't really care. Their constituents aren't really pushing them hard. There isn't a lot of political consequence to be squishy on it. And so they may take a hard stance on one issue, but then another issue that would demand philosophical consistency, they're just kind of silent on it until a time comes where they've got to step up and do something about it. You actually see examples of this with like uh, laws and attitudes against marijuana, for instance. Lots of people thought the way many people think today a long time ago, but the incentives changed and it's when it was time for them to say, all right, I, I guess it's less costly for me to take a stance on this. Yeah. yeah. Or they didn't have an opinion at all about it. They didn't care right. about marijuana, but they were required in order to be yep. part of a group to have a particular belief around that. Mm -hmm. So maybe I've, I've actually changed my mind here. Y'all have changed my mind around this. Maybe this is actually, it is not two different issues. We're talking First Amendment and Second Amendment. And what she's saying here is, Hey, they were so concerned about you know, banning books to restricting speech. Why don't we restrict guns as well or, or vice versa? Also, to be clear, I don't think it was Congress. I thought it was like the state of Florida or, te or Texas or something, wasn't it? Yeah, they I, banned I don't it know. for like the public school. Or do they ban like, do they ban firms from hiring DEI officers or something? I thought it was something where like, I don't think it was all of Congress though, but yeah. But yeah, what you said, like people only have like so much psychological bandwidth for certain issues. Like we can't talk about every single issue at every single point in time. That's right. So yeah, it just depends on what's capturing the public's imagination. Well, which gonna... unfortunately for the Republican Party right now for the past two years has been like trans people. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's this preoccupation and it seems... It would seem like this is one of the greatest issues of our time. I know several trans people. It's not really an issue for me. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't see, and you brought up a point earlier. Yeah, but do you have any kids? Yeah. And I could see where it would become an issue then. I can also see where it'd become an issue if you are a woman in professional sports mm -hmm. and you're now competing against biological men who have transitioned into becoming women. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, I know you said we can't talk about every issue, but we're going to try today. <laughs> we got a few minutes left here. Let's get to uh, Susan's question. Can you please talk about big pharma? Why is medicine so outrageously expensive? Yeah, do you have a nuanced view of big pharma or is it just I all hate good? everybody that uses big anything. That's yeah. my first one. <laughs> big pharma. Apparently for you, it's big water. <laughs> big water. Big government. Big. Any of the big words always trigger me. There's always some dumb shit about to be said. Um, I don't have a good answer for that. We invest a lot in medicine. We do a lot of research here. We develop a lot of like cutting edge drugs. Um, 
Why is it so expensive? I mean, I, I've, I need to do more research on that. I'll probably do it this next political season. I hear a lot of answers given, but it's always hard to measure the magnitude. Like some people say insurance companies, and it's like, are they really the big drivers of all the costs? Some people say hospitals charge too much, administrative fees. And it's like, our hospital staff do get paid a lot of money in the United States. That is true. But is mm-hmm. that really what's driving it? Um, other people, conservatives especially, will say, because companies can't compete across state lines. And it's like, is that really the big driver? Other people will say inflationary costs because of like Medicare and... I. I'm just giving a whole bunch of things. I don't know what the actual answer is. I have no idea. And it's possible that those are all, I mean, it sounds like those are probably all contributing factors. Yeah, but depending on your political affiliation, you're going to pick the one thing that triggers you the most and you're going to say that that's like 95%. That is so unfortunate, man. That is so unfortunate how political tribalism just makes us stupid, right? We, We can't acknowledge things that it is not a part of our party or group's MO to acknowledge. And, and that's totally killing nuance. And, and this takes us back to that, you know, why we just identify with groups. And, and part of that reason is because when someone says, this is my opinion on the matter, half the world says, we don't love you anymore. The other half says, you're our hero. Right. And where are people going to go? They're going to go run to the people that says you're our hero. And then they're going to, they're going to read the room and realize these are all the other things I got to believe in order to continue being a hero. And then they just conform in that way. And it makes for such a sad world. But most good explanations are multidimensional. They're nuanced and they require... Unsatisfying. Yeah. Yeah. Very unsatisfying. I want to know that it's just because of a greedy capitalist guy making a ton of money. Or I want to know it's just because Fauci got paid $7 billion to shove vaccines. Like that's a way more satisfying answer because it fulfills so many parts of your like psyche. Yeah. Yeah. And it saves me a lot of time. I don't have to think. Yeah. One thing that we, this is a thing we hit on earlier. It's kind of related to this. Something that's very frustrating is a lot of the bad conversations, the conspiracy theories, the oversimplifications of problems is not only is it annoying because then you're going to fight the conspiracy theories. There usually are, whatever there's a conspiracy theory around, there usually is a lot of really good conversation that could happen around that topic that now is hijacked by conspiracy theories. I think that as a society, I think there's a lot of incredibly fascinating conversation topics to have around the coronavirus lockdowns. Um, What, like how dangerous does a virus need to be for there to be a lockdown, right? Like for a lot of things, people pretend they have a principal position. I don't think they do. I think that like, for instance, if there was like a flu going around, I don't think progressives would say we need to shut down the world economy. And if there was a disease that went around and murdered children in a slow, violent death for 30 days or whatever, I think most conservatives would be like, yeah, we're going to shut down the schools and not have any children going outside, right? I think people would generally do it. But there's a huge gray area in the middle where how dangerous something needs to be. What is the government responsibility? How much money do they need to pay out? Should we be helping small businesses or big businesses more? Like there's all these really fascinating questions. But instead now it's just like, were they trying to shove mandates down our throat? Was it just the government killing small businesses? Was it just Klaus Schwab and the ESG scores and the World Economic Forum trying to do the great reset? And it's not just coronavirus lockdowns. It could be vaccines. It could be any number of things, but there are so many like really interesting conversations where you can dig back and forth on like really good points. Like Ukraine, like what obligation does the United States have for the security of Europe? It's a good question, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about how the Azov Battalion is Nazis and how we're pouring more money into Ukraine than the fired people in Maui. And it's like, yeah, that it frustrates me that we miss out on all the good conversations because we're just fighting back and forth on the conspiracies, I think. And this is why what you do is so valuable bringing conversations to the forefront and saying, I'm not afraid to debate them. I'm, I'm not afraid for other people to watch me in a debate and say, oh, I don't like him because of that opinion or, oh, he got owned. <laughs> and so many people are just afraid to be in a discussion because they're afraid, oh, I'm going to get owned. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it 
as a goal of getting to the truth and refining your own understanding of the universe, you can't lose a debate because the only way you could lose a debate is if you're talking to someone that can run circles around you and knows things that you don't know. But what a wonderful position to be in. That's the only discussion I want to have. I want to talk with people that can run circles around me because now I'm learning something. You know? That requires you to be a person with ideas, but most people unfortunately become the ideas and then the ideas kind of yeah. own them. And what happens is instead of like, cause I, yeah, cause I'll always say like, I'm like, I mean, I'll shorthand, I'll say I'm a capitalist, but I'm not like a capitalist. I'm just a guy that believes in capitalism. But right. if you show me like a better form of economic organization, like, oh, fuck it, I'll believe in that. Like I'm not yeah. married to fucking capitalism. I don't, I don't care one way or another. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and yeah, it's the same thing with most ideas, but because ideas are so personal to people that usually an attack on a per, on, on an idea is an attack on the person. And it's very hard psychologically for them to get out of an area where they can stop defending a certain idea because it's become like a part of who they are. They identify with it and it's very personal to them. And, and in fairness, one of the many causes of that is not just the personal insecurity of the person who is incorrect about something, but also sometimes the attitude of those who are in possession of a truth. I often say that if you want to know why people have such a hard time being wrong, just look at how people who are right act mm-hmm. when they are vindicated. Yes. And sometimes, I mean, we, we all know what it's like to be on both the wrong side and right side of an argument. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're on the right side of an argument. Oh man, we can gloat and we can get in that person's face and slam dunk on them and celebrate in a way that does make it look and feel like a competition. And so I think if you ever turn out to be right on something, it can be helpful to be gracious and say, hey, look, just because you don't have an answer to my question right now doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means that, you know, it might be useful to keep thinking that through and we can come back and we can discuss. It doesn't mean I owned you just because I refuted that point. I still could be wrong and I want to know that if I am. Mm -hmm. But either way, it's not a win or loss, you know? I call this... uh it's harder to do this publicly because oftentimes it is like warring factions and you yeah. you kind of have to force the concessions because it's important for the audience. Yeah. But especially on a personal level, I call this the soft landing pad. Like there are people that I have conversations with, we dramatically disagree on a lot of these things, but like my goal is to just like talk and have the conversation. And generally people tell me this and I think generally I do a pretty good job of this at like being really explicit is that like, if you want to explore ideas or bounce them off of me here, that'd be really cool and fun. And if you do end up agreeing with me or if you do end up kind of changing something, I'm not here to be like, told you, dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> Can't believe it took you so long. What an idiot. Like, I, I totally got you. Right? No, I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. Like, if you think they're like, yeah, Tom, maybe feeling a month or about it. But it's like that idea of kind of creating a space where it's like, yeah. if you want to change your idea, if you're kind of considering something else, like you can flirt with that idea or, you know, consider it in front of me. And I'm not there looking to jump down your throat mm. if I end up being correct on something, you know? Yeah. There's this old relationship adage you can either be right or you can be in love. Happy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, you, you, that happens often. Like, I'm going to be so right in my marriage, it's going to ruin the marriage because of my self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. Although I will say TK is one of those principled people I think you were talking about earlier where I think he would probably stand by the principle if that same anti-lockdown principle if there was an airborne Ebola virus. Um, although I think he'd still say locked in his house personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on personal voluntary lockdown all the time. <laughs> but it seems to me that even in an extreme scenario like that, I don't know that your principles would change. I'm probably closer with Destiny was talking about where I'm like, yeah, it doesn't make sense to lock up for the flu, but if there is airborne Ebola, we probably need to stay indoors for a while. Two quick things. One one particular comment, the other a general comment. I think it's important when we talk about the topic of mandatory lockdowns or anything like that under any scenario, 
we make a distinction between what we claim to be doing for the protection of someone other than those who are being locked down and what we claim to be doing for the good of those we are locking down. And there can be mixed contradictory messages that we're signaling on that. And a follow-up question would be, how much, how much of a right do we have to force people to do things for their own good when there is evidence to suggest that they are not harming anyone else? And, and that applies to every topic. Um, as far as the, the consistency issue, um, for me, I just want to make it clear that I'm not, willing to, I'm not willing to maintain a belief under extreme conditions as an act of stubbornness. Well, nope, I said that, I said that I'm a believer of this ism, so I don't care. Uh, I believe in this ism. No, it's more a matter of saying, if I think something is true, I need more to believe that it's false than you giving me a scenario that requires me to pay a hefty price for the truth. I never claim to like the truth all the time. Sometimes I hate the truth. Sometimes the truth really stinks, but I'm not gonna deny that something is true just because I don't like it, it's uncomfortable and it's inconvenient for me. At least half of my beliefs are uncomfortable and inconvenient for me. And I think we should always be asking ourselves, hey, what am I willing to accept as true even when I don't like it. And if your answer to that is nothing, then your worldview is made up of nothing more than just what you wish, what you like. But if you're going to be challenged by truth, you got to have some things that you're willing to acknowledge because the evidence supports them, not because no one is able to come up with a hypothetical scenario that says, yeah, but would you follow that truth if nobody liked you and you were broke? Well, it's still true. Mm. And I hope that I wouldn't be a hypocrite in that moment. I'd say that's a pr those are probably the only times actually where your principles matter are the times where it's uncomfortable. Um, I wish I could remember the author of the story. I haven't read either, but I wrote a synopsis of it that illustrates this point. Um, something priest, Chester Brown, any of this ring any bells? Uh, not to me, Sean. Um, fuck, there's oh. a, um, but it's, it's a book about, I believe that there was a brother who went away from a town for a long time and he came back and the town found out that this brother's twin, his brother, he tried to kill him. And then the brother fought in self-defense and he ended up killing his brother. And he came back to the town and everybody was like, uh, basically everybody was like, oh man, like I said, you're to kill him. But like, you know, even though maybe that's not the best, like we forgive you for doing that. And the priest in the town was like, you murdered your brother. That's wrong. You need to pay penance. You need to ask God for forgiveness and you need to, you know, in order to move on with your life, you have to do this. And everybody in the town thought the priest was a huge asshole. Cause they're like, man, come on. Um, we all forgave him. Like, why can't you like, what's up? And eventually I think it comes out of the story that it was the opposite, that the brother himself actually killed his twin for no good reason. It was for some selfish, stupid reason. And the entire town was now like, hold on, we don't forgive you. This was horrible. Not good. I can't believe that you murdered your brother in cold blood. It's your brother. And the priest's answer was exactly the same. You need to do penance to come to God and do everything. And I think like one of the purposes of the story was to show that like sometimes we'll do things where we feel like we're being gracious or we're being forgiving of people, but not really, mm, right? It's like yeah. when you hear a story of like, uh, like, oh, I hit my husband yesterday. Or have you ever read these Reddit stories where it's like, am I the asshole for hitting my husband? Yeah. And the story be like, my husband came home, he broke my glass, he called me a stupid whore, blah, blah, blah. And then he said he was gonna kill my child, so I slapped him. Am I a bad person? And everybody be like, oh no, we support you. And it's like, you're not like, yeah, obviously, mm, right? Yeah. It doesn't take any 
courage or commitment to principles to support somebody who you like agree with 99% of the way anyway. But if somebody's did something that is truly requiring forgiveness or something that was truly just fully wrong or bad without good justification, then to practice in forgiveness or whatever, that does require a much higher threshold or obligation to that principle. And I think that's important to keep in mind sometimes because sometimes we want to give people, we want to give ourselves a lot of credit for supporting people. It's like, oh no, I'm a good person. Like I, I forgave this guy and I did this or like, I think this person's okay. But usually it's because those people are like, you either have justified their action or they align with you 99% of the way anyway, you know? Yeah. And and you you see examples of this in in political tribalism. It's one of the sad things, but it also gives me hope. And that is, in my efforts to get people to be skeptical, not just of one group or one person, but to be skeptical of everyone, including politicians, I comfort myself with the thought that everyone, at least at some point in their lifetime, will belong to me because they will have a politician that they hate and then they will hear everything I say mm-hmm. about not giving free trust to someone who hasn't earned it. It's just so difficult to be skeptical when it's your guy up there. Man, not to, I'm sorry, my, all my study last year was on like vaccines and everything related to COVID virus. So a lot of my examples come from that. And they're also anti-conservative. So I'm sorry, I do shit on progressives a lot on my show, so, I promise. So, <laughs> but um, I, I don't identify as a conservative, so you ain't got to sure. worry about me. I don't oh, identify I as a liberal. Audience, yeah. If you've got like conservatives in the audience, you'll For sure, we have yeah. conservatives, liberals, but like I've never polled the audience. And mm-hmm. in fact, that's, yeah. I want to wrap it up here and, okay. and, and just say, first off, thanks, because this is a conversation where I'm, to- and this never happens to me on this podcast, I'm totally out of my depth in oh, all sure. of these questions, with the exception of the the hoarding question early on. But I respect the fact that people can have these sorts of conversations. And you've both taught me to be curious in a way, to be interested without making an initial judgment about a person, about an ideology, about a belief, and to hold things loosely. And I think that's ultimately the spirit of the minimalists, is we're not just about throwing things out to to get rid of it and you must shun all material goods or whatever. It's holding on to things that serve you and holding them loosely because you're prepared to let it go. And I think the same thing is especially true with, with our beliefs. I think it's true with any ideology that we pick up. It's a, true of any tribe or community we're a part of. I'll be a part of that, but if it ceases to serve me or if it harms me, then I'm willing to let it go. Ladies and gentlemen, destiny. You can check him out, uh, destiny.gg. Also, we'll put a link to his YouTube channel and his social media in the notes. Any Anything else we should end with here? Uh, thanks a lot for the conversation. It's been fun chatting with you guys. I really appreciate <laughs> it, man. Yeah. It's... Uh, I, I knew we'd have some some solid back and forth and some solid disagreements here without any anger, without any vitriol, because I knew you were both capable of doing that. And it was nice to be a, a fly on the wall here. Yes. Yeah. Much respect to you for coming in and just being such a good sport with talking about these issues and so on. And for anybody that watched this conversation and felt tense, that's a healthy tension because we all had a good time up here. There, yeah. there, there are no hard feelings at all. This is what we enjoy trying to refine our understanding of the world. And we'll have to do a round two next time you're in town because we have about a dozen questions we didn't get to. <laughs> we'll get to those next time. That is our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Much love, everyone. Thanks for having me. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing 
anything that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it 